Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Michael Rothman, Editor-in-Chief and President of Consequence of Sound, and I'm here with my co-hosts... Randall Colburn, the rockin' one. And Mackenzie Gerber. Now, you can hear us pretty well, right? I think so. That's yes. because we're recording from a studio here in Chicago, Illinois. That wasn't always the case, though. When we started this podcast, we were actually huddled around an old Yeti microphone in Mac's apartment that he doesn't even live in anymore. That's right. And there were not four or three of us. There were like six or seven. So we wanted to go back to our older episodes and make sure that you, constant listener, actually have a good grasp on knowing that this is not how it's always going to sound. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's a very rough quality, and we just happen to have that rough quality over Stephen King's most iconic books. So Yeah, it's rough. But I'd say, yeah, I'd, for Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Rage, and The Stand, I believe. Night Shift, too. And, and Night, Night Shift. Shift. Yeah. We recorded those episodes in a very sort of primitive way, um, doing our best. That was before we got our studio, which makes us sound so lovely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you'll notice that the audio quality is going to be a little bit not up to par, but... I'd say the content of the conversations are still very, very good. I'm very proud of the analysis we did. You'll notice a few other changes, too. Like um, in these early episodes, we talk about everything. Everything. Yeah, we didn't like now we stretch our legs a bit. We do separate episodes for the movies, for other things. And for here, we're basically like, let's talk about all the Stephen King news, as well as the book, <laughs> as well as the films, as well as the plays, as well as everything. So these episodes run long. Um, well, I mean, a lot of ours do, but these run extra long because we're talking about those things and you'll also notice that kind of the way that we break down our conversations now is a little bit different we refine that over time yeah. so so yeah you'll notice that it's a little bit rougher but it's the same quality losers club content and that these, you've always wanted. these episodes nearly killed us uh the <laughs> night shift episode i got the flu because we recorded for everything we recorded for 11 hours straight yeah I think. two yeah. episodes back to back covering all, all what 20 stories all 20 stories and, and the movie and the movies Oof. it was exhausting i was i think towards the end of the episode i started fading away dan started uh, crying dan started crying <laughs> i cried in the shining episode i believe yeah uh, so yeah th th these episodes are special they're very good episodes. they're very special episodes but we did want to make sure that you didn't go into the this podcast thinking that it's going to sound like this forever <laughs> because obviously Obviously, as you could hear from us right now, that's just not the case. Yeah, if you're just popping in to hear like, oh, I love Salem's Lot. I'm going to check out this new podcast. Why does it sound like they're recording underwater? You know, we just never really thought that. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we were testing things out. We were yeah. seeing if anybody would even care if we did this podcast. And luckily, a lot of you guys did care. And you listened and supported us and followed us on social media. And so we were able to, you know, beef up the sound, make things sound better, expand our lineup and refine the way that we do things uh, as it is now. So. Because so much has changed mm -hmm. since 2017, not only with us, but the whole world at large That's and you're right. going to hear about all of it as you're journeying through each one of these episodes and now we'll let you venture into king's dominion in your biohazard suit <laughs> with stephen king's 
The Stand. Greetings, constant listeners. We'd like to thank you for your listens, your likes, your messages, and your deep probing criticisms and condemnations of any Full House-themed related tomfoolery from previous episodes. It is all appreciated, and we'd appreciate it even more if you'd leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps uh, other constant listeners find the podcast and join in on this, I, I like to call it an interactive book club. Ooh, that's a good, uh, that's your good elevator pitch. I think so. Uh, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, my name is Randall Colburn, by the way, and I am a senior writer at Consequence of Sound, and I've missed you all because I've been, I've been gone. I've been, uh... Um, in Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> on a journey of your own. <laughs> journey of my own. Uh, and joining me today is... Uh, I'm Dan Caffrey, senior writer. Also, uh, I think you and I have been gone for the same amount of time. Yeah, we've been yeah, gone for we've, several I've, uh, I'm, uh, I'm Tom Cullen and you're Stu. Uh, <laughs> off and we're back in the free zone We were now. watching Rambo in, a, in a, a, a Motel 6 or whatever in the middle of a snowstorm. <laughs> And I'm Mackenzie Gerber, uh, and I guess you can like me to the, the the dead kid in the car. The Wolfman. Yeah. Uh, I'm Allison Shoemaker, and I'm the rotating female panelist. <laughs> Who's also dead in a car somewhere. Yeah, probably. And also the only, I think the only constant stand presence, right? Because you read it for the first time. Because yeah. all, all of us have sat out for at least one episode. It's my gimmick. Exactly. <laughs> We're excited to hear your cumulative thoughts, which we will arrive at, I'm sure. Um, today, so uh, if you haven't pieced it together, today we are here to uh, put a bow on our discussion of Stephen King's Behemoth, The Stand. Ah. Yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. When we last left you, our intrepid heroes, Stu, Larry, Glenn, and good old country boy, Ralph Brentner. And Kojak. And Kojak, I forgot about Kojak. Uh, uh, were set out on foot to Las Vegas. Nick Andros was blown into pieces. <laughs> uh, Harold and Nadine were fugitives. And Mother Abigail was also dead. Um... Uh, so, Dan, why don't you catch us up just for listeners who maybe haven't read The Stand in a while. How does book three begin? Sure. So book three is pretty much focused on the road to Las Vegas, then the people in Las Vegas once they've reached it, uh, both the spies and the four members uh, that Mother Abigail has sent off to take their final stand. And then, of course, uh, the return to the Colorado Free Zone. But I'd say it's mostly a Vegas-centric yeah. chapter. Um, I mean, this... This is titled The Stand, right? This book three is, is t- actually titled The Stand? I think so. Let me double check that. That is correct. Yes. Book three is actually titled The Stand. I like and... how casually you were just like, uh, they went to Vegas to take the stand. <laughs> they, they took their stand. <laughs> the stand happened. They stood. Um, they sat back down and they returned home. Um, no, but, uh, you know, th- this chat, this book is titled The Stand. And I mean, and boy, does it lo- live up to that because that's really what it's focused on. Um, compared to the other books, it's it's really lean and short. I mean, it really is focused on the journey to what becomes the, the climax of the book. Um, Character-wise, we open with Judge, uh, Judge Ferris, um, one of the spies being sent to Las Vegas on his way there, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. He meets some trouble, uh, <laughs> to say the least. And then we yeah. got a... And then, but we all... Yeah, we also... Uh, 
we kind of get an update on all the spies kind of at the beginning of the mm-hmm. third book. Because we, we haven't heard from them yet. Right. We meet Dana, who is uh, uh, stepping uh, Lloyd Henry, I think is the right phrase. And then you see Tom Collin, who's, uh, I think he was the first one sent, right, to Las Vegas. So he's kind of been blending in with their society, and it's almost time for him to go back. And um, we also get to see Harold and Nadine on the way to Vegas. And uh, boy, does not not end well no, for anyone not. involved. No, sir. Yeah, and then, of course, the like we said, the four... Uh, the four heroes at the center and their furry canine companion, Kojak. <laughs> um, and that's pretty much where we're at. It's uh, What I love about this book three is that it, in, in the vein of the second half of book one, first half of book two, it's very much like a road movie again. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, and uh, I think what you said, um, Dan, about... You know, I, I know it's kind of silly because it's such a vague thing, but the stand, I think, I think that's probably like a really... When we're talking about the hook of book three, it really is sort of about all these characters sort of, you know taking their final bow or taking their final meeting like their their maker in a lot of ways. I mean, we see sort of, uh, you know, everyone's fate is very much interwoven into this final uh, book. And I feel like that concept of taking a stand for whatever it is you actually believe in is something that is a running theme throughout this, not just with our heroes, but with people like Lloyd and Trashcan Man too. So, yeah, it's interesting you say that because it really, it is funny, the fates of, Pretty much every character in the book, not even just the the people in the free zone, but Vegas also, it does it rests all on these these four guys going off to make their stand. And and um, something that's interesting is that we're set up for it to be this climactic battle of good and evil. But if if you think about what happens, there's actually not a ton of action on their part. It's pretty much going there, like you said, standing up for what they believe in. And um, we'll get into a little bit of trash came in it sort of uh, indirectly setting these other things into motion that result in the in the big explosion. It's true. Yeah. Um, well, and, and so that's that's something that's interesting to me. And so when I when I first uh, rereading this section, seeing all them just get, get thrown in jail, they don't bring any weapons, you're kind of like, man, why aren't you guys attacking? Why aren't you doing something else? And there was a certain point in the book where I where they were on the, cr- the um, not the cross, what are those disembowelment cages, whatever you want to call oh, them. Oh, yeah. And where right, right. Larry and Ralph are, they're, they're the only two left, and they're being put in these cages to be disemboweled. And I kept thinking, I'm like, well, them showing up to to Vegas, does it does it actually make a difference? Like, Trash Can Man already had this, this nuclear warhead. Like, they were going to get blown up either way. But then I did it. Th- one of you guys brought it up. You were like, "Well, no, but they do create a diversion for Trash Command to get back in, not knowingly, but yeah. he's able to make his way back in undetected because of that." I mean, what, do, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, just jump right to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think, I think it's absolutely. You're, I think you're right. I think if they weren't there, they, they, w- the crowd wouldn't all be gathered in that one central location of Vegas. They wouldn't, you know, be doing all that uh, setup uh, for the the big event. Mm-hmm. Um, people would have been and and at that point you know there's a lot of you know deserters and whatnot you know it's not there's not a lot of people checking and making sure that you know the people coming in are the people that are supposed to be coming in etc so yeah i think absolutely yeah i mean you just have to question the idea of whether or not i mean i think one of the if we're talking about sort of themes and stuff one of the things that fascinates me about book three is is how involved is is a christian god in all of this or a devil is there such you know, in this world, um, is Mother Abigail's God truly the overseer of all of these plans and actions? When at the end of the book, when uh, something that looks like the hand of God comes down, <laughs> oh, the hand of God! Like, is that 
<clears throat> excuse me, is that, um, is, are we supposed to be taking that seriously? Like, what is actually going on? Is the trash can man, in a weird way, an emissary of God? And I think that, uh, I think that that's a really interesting question here, because I know that that's something that you and I have discussed, Dan, the idea of how prevalent the religious aspects are in this. And I guess when I was younger, I guess I always, you know, I was a very, I was raised Catholic. I was a very simple kid when it came to religion. And so I just always thought that, yeah, Mother Abigail's God is the God I read about in the picture books. And uh, Randall Flagg is a sidekick to the, you know, the, the horned uh, pitchfork holding devil. But, you know, I think rereading it uh, now as an adult, I was actually very struck by, I think that, it re I think that King does allow there to be a certain amount of ambiguity to it. I feel like he isn't, he isn't, I think that there is obviously something otherworldly going on here, but I'm not necessarily sure that I would attribute it to, um, you know, a God versus devil sort of scenario, because I think that uh, there's just too many moving parts and there's too, and you know, not all the characters, like, it's not like every character has a moment where they like find God. It's like, there's a lot, you know, it's, Stu never really has that moment, does he? I, I mean, that, that's a good point. I mean, and you guys touched on this a lot in the, the last episode too, this idea of how religion does come into play with, with, in the stand. And that was something I struggle a lot with in book two. It's not the idea of faith necessarily, but with book two, it's the idea of faith, but then on top of that, you have, I think Justin kept calling it the back padding and all this. It, it, it allows for everyone to get very self-righteous about it, which of course becomes a downfall because Mother, exactly, Mother yeah. Abigail says the sin is pride. And it, and, and the it, sin is pride in Vegas, too. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so the religious stuff didn't bother, because I'm not religious, but it didn't bother me in book two because in the end, like you said, it did it did become a little bit more about putting just putting your faith into something bigger than yourself, which I think is, is maybe something we can all relate to. Um, yeah. What are your guys thoughts? No, on I think that's true. And I, I think, you know, when you see like even Larry, who I feel like grapples with it and grapples with going on the journey yeah. Yeah. and then, but at the end when he's, you know, strung up, I feel like he has definitely kind of made his peace and, and does believe in something higher. I mean, just from anything that he, he says in those, yeah. those last few pages. And also like with Larry, I mean, that that he was almost it's almost like he he needed to believe in something in those five he doesn't really accept that there's a higher power until he's really on death's door and then you know and i think that he finds like ralph like ralph who's always had that faith like larry finds some kind of solace in those final moments and that but it's literally like not until they're in jail cells yeah. you know like and they hear ralph or glenn gets shot i'm also a little jealous of ralph and larry because right there at the end they get they get to see the hand of god so it's like it's like well now they definitely know they definitely believe now if they didn't before and they're gonna you know well i don't think the hand is as uh, as hand-like as it is in the in the uh film rubbish I, I, I don't buy it at all well yeah but i mean they, that is a good point though i mean we, we always i think anyone who's read the stand even people who love it the hand of god always becomes like a, a talking point i feel like and the way it's phrased in this is it did indeed look like a hand. I think Ralph says the hand of God and Larry says it looked like a hand. Mm -hmm. And it's the, here's the, here's the problem with that. As I see it is that whether or not it's actually the hand of God, it still is formed out of this ball of electricity that comes from magical means from Randall flag. Yeah. And that is something I struggle with a little bit. I'm like, okay, whether or not it's a hand, it still comes from a fantastical thing. Yeah. So it, it, it takes away from the ambiguity. What do you think, Allison? I don't know. I, for me, that it feels like um, a much more classic 
story and that sort of removed from religion. Like, if anything, I think the end of the book um, suggests that the rules and ties that we set up around organized religion or really any sort of organized system in which we begin to tell people who's bad and who's good mm-hmm. um, are dangerous. Yeah. But I, I was th- that specifically, I think, actually is clearest at the end of book two when... Um, uh, the free zone, the people of the free zone are so like hungry for punishment and mm-hmm. for bloodlust yeah. Oh, yeah, um, out of righteousness. Anyway, um, to me, it's the thing that I really like about it as slightly silly as it is. And I haven't seen the miniseries, so I'm really <laughs> looking forward to this oh, moment. God, yeah. Um, is that it's, it emerges from darkness and is transformed into a, a power Ooh, for good. Yeah. Right. Like it means more to me that it's, one of Flag's little magic electric balls that then becomes this force for quote unquote good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I find really fitting. I, it's so, they're not remotely the same story, but for whatever reason, reading book three, I thought about Harry Potter a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, specifically in the way that the people in Las Vegas, the way their feelings about Flag start to transform and thinking about um, this great line from one of the Potter books, maybe the sixth. Um, about how tyrants always fear those they oppress because they know someday someone will rise up amongst them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Flag becomes more and more unhinged and as people start to question his infallibility, like that feels to me like a grander good and evil as opposed to God and devil, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's also interesting because I feel like, and obviously the Potter books hadn't come out yet, but King's a big Potterhead. I mean, he's a big fan of J.K. Rowling. so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's yeah, Wolves of the Kala. Yeah, there's some some direct Potter stuff in there, which is very interesting. Um, but no, I yeah, it, yeah, the, the whole ball electricity thing. And w- when we get to to talking about Flag later on, I, I got some stuff on on, on this guy. <laughs> well, I've got his I've got his number, his ticket. I was really I'm really struck by what you said, Allison. Just the idea of a grander good and evil. And I think also what I love about book three that we really get to see is we get such good insight into the people of Vegas who, though it's implied that a lot of their, I'll say, subservience or um, nobility comes out of fear because uh, Flag is crucifying people, there's a lot of sections that of the various uh, spies who are sharing sort of their experience with the other people there, and it's very positive for the most part. Like, I have this quote here. um, uh, Let me see this. Like, the others were also okay. She thought that Vegas had a rather large, larger proportion of stupids than the zone, but none of them wore fangs, and they didn't turn into bats at moonrise. They were also people who worked much harder than she remembered the people in the zone working. In the free zone, you saw people idling in the parks at all hours of the day, and there were people who decided to break for lunch from noon until 2. That sort of thing didn't happen over here. From 8 a.m. to, to, to 5 p.m., everybody was working. And then also, I was very struck by when they were talking about the children that live in Vegas. Oh, yeah. Little um, Dinny or something? Yeah, Dinny. Uh, let's see. There were about 20 kids in Vegas, ages ranging from four. Uh, that was Daniel McCarthy, the pet of everyone in town, known as Dinny, up to 15. They had found two people with teaching certificates, and classes went on five days a week. Lloyd, who had quit school after repeating his junior year for the third time, <laughs> was very proud of the educational opportunities that were being provided. The pharmacies were open and unguarded. People came and went all the time, but they took nothing away nothing heavier than a bottle of aspirin or gel 
there was no drug problem in the West. Anyone who had seen what happened to Hector Drogon knew what the penalty for a habit was. There were also no rich Moffats either. Everyone was friendly and straight, and it was wise to drink nothing stronger than a bottle of beer. So the fear underlies it, but at the same time, the way that... Uh, the scenes with Dinny are always really uh, revealing because you sort of see the way that these other people within Vegas, like that, you know, they're really good with kids. They're really friendly. I love that they like have uh, educational opportunities going on. These are all things that they don't have in, in the free zone. And I find, I've always found that really interesting because, you know, it's almost like in the film, I'll just make this connection. There's moments in the film where all you see in Vegas are like <laughs> are like biker looking dudes in like leather vests, like burning cars and shit. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's like it all just seems a little. Cr- it, it's not all. It's not all like that in the movie, but but you know, and I, I think that when you're if you look at it, sort of you know, like the ideas of good and evil are too nuanced in this than to just be like God and devil. Right. You know, it's like it's like it's these are it's more grander philosophical ideas of what is good and what is not. I do want to uh, touch on one thing that Allison mentioned, and and it ties back to the religious element of it not necessarily just being a critique of absolute systems within a faith, but also a critique of systems in general, which I think is also a big hook slash theme, especially at the end. I mean, the last line of the book proper is, do you think, I'm paraphrasing, but do you think humans will ever learn anything? And, And they say, I don't know. And I think that becomes clear when after the, the stand has happened it's not just, oh, the bad guys are dead, we're fine now. They go back to the free zone, and more people are there. They want more structure in place. Part of why Stu and Franny leave at the end is because there's this like new sheriff in town, quote-unquote. Yeah. P- you see they're going back to the old ways. I mean, they're going back to having these institutions, and that's, of course, what leads to things like superflu in the first place. And um, I... That, to me, was such a resonant final theme for the book, like a final statement, and something I didn't pick up on when I was little. Because like you guys said, when you're little, you're drawn more to the good and evil aspects of it, which is certainly part of it. But I think that is such a complex thing for a work of post-apocalyptic fiction to say, because it lets people rebuild, and we get to see the good guys, and then Stephen King directly critiques all of them. And I, and I, I don't know, did that like resonate with you guys? So that, that was something that was very haunting to me um in turn especially with what's going on in the world today just Mm -hmm. the idea of systems failing and i think that maybe is also a big theme slash hook of the book yeah i think it's actually really interesting because like like you know i grew up with the miniseries so reading the book for the first time book three the whole idea of las vegas having people that aren't just like these crazy bikers you know (laughs) that are just like regular people uh was very interesting because you know, it's not black and white. There's probably a lot of people that were there that were probably good people, but just scared. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, out of fear, mm-hmm. went and went along with this. You know, a very like, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> Mike's gonna love this. It's very World War Two. Uh, <laughs> you know, in Germany. You know, like there's a lot of good people there that just they went along with it because they they were scared for their families and scared that there was gonna be this punishment if they didn't. And it also makes you wonder, did everybody have dreams? Yeah. Like everybody. Like did everybody have a dream about flag? Did everybody or was I it just where did they hear things? In book three, and I don't remember where it is, but about how everyone in Vegas had dreams of flag. Where they it was something they yeah. all shared. See, and that's scary because if you know, if you're having these constant dreams of flag and I mean I I can see people being frightened into 
going there. Yeah. But it's also interesting because, uh, like you said, you know, at the end of the book, where there's this sheriff and things are kind of going back to that the ways, or or like Allison mentioned, when everyone's kind of like hungry for this, you know, punishment for the the people that you know for Harold and Nadine. It's like, well, yeah, all these people in Boulder maybe they had dreams of Mother Abigail. Maybe they went there because they were like, well, this, this is, this seems a lot better than what the other guy has to offer. But are they just like pure people? And like, no. you know what I mean? I mean like, I it, think that's they, pretty apparent that they're, that they're not. Yeah. And, and that's what I think is so interesting about the book is that, you know, it, it's not black and white and, and things are probably just going to kind of end up being the same. And, you know, so I'm, I'm glad Franny and, and Stu decided to cut out. I and, find the end very, I find the end very <laughs> melancholy in a lot of ways. I, I, it makes me sad only because like, like when Stu and Franny, you know, they have she has her baby and you know, they seem to be settling in and like they're like we can finally really exist as a as a couple and as a family. And they're, you know, I think of I, I I'm very touched by the idea of community and and how lonely it must be. Uh, in kind of, you know, a post-apocalyptic world. And the idea that, you know, but they know that they have to leave because what, what Stu and what Franny have learned is that what you were just saying, Dan, about how systems fail. And once you start forming communities, those communities begin finding enemies or begin finding who is infringing upon our right to exist. And, uh, and then once you start appointing uh, police chiefs and you know once you start doing all that it's like all of the systems begin to uh, become somewhat oppressive and so it's you know but then the thing is so it makes sense that they would want to leave and go be on their own but I just found such a melancholy because it's like you know I'm, I'm a big fan of any story where the band gets together you know and you have all <laughs> yeah. these people together and like I love the idea of you know Stu and Franny hanging out with Lucy and uh you know, Brad Kitchener and whoever else is hanging around. Getting the power on, man. I know, but it's just kind of like, it just, but it's, so there's also something a little melancholy to me about the end of the book of them going off on their own. And I know that they're happy, but just the image of them kind of being alone with their child and kind of going up to Maine, there's just something kind of solitary about that, that even though I understand the grander themes of the book about, uh, you know, not rushing to start systems and um, communities and organizations, it's, you know, there's still this sense of, like, desolate kind of loneliness. When it's funny you bring up the timeline, because this is something that actually bugged me about this time around with the book that I don't think we brought up yet, is that this book happens so quick, if you think about it. I mean, the world ends in, what, a couple weeks or something mm -hmm. like that, and even from the moment that they start the free zone to when they take the final stand, it's only, like, a few, a couple months, maybe, and sometimes I wonder, and maybe, maybe that's very much on purpose, maybe King is trying to say... No, human humanity would be in a rush to get all the stuff back that they don't have. And I don't know, part of me does wish that maybe they were in the free zone for like a year or so before all this happened. Like the rebuilding and all that seems very quick. But then again, I don't know, maybe maybe it is maybe it is in, in uh very much working in tandem with this final statement of the book. And I will say also, this book ends up saving book two for me because book two is so aggravating with the all the stuff we're talking about, like the bit rebuilding society and the meetings and the minutes and all that. Um, and, and none, none of the ideas of, of, uh, systems failing, except maybe from Glenn, none of that is really confirmed, I think until the very end of this book. And that kind of makes the more, I don't know, the more arduous stuff worth it for well, me. Well, I think there's a little of that in book two, but it's right at the end, right? Mm -hmm. For me, it's that, that final meeting they have before the four oh, set yeah. out. Yeah. 
um, where I can't remember his name, but the douchebag who takes the long lunch breaks. Oh and yeah, is, like the, sweaty and awful. Not Rich Moffat's the drunk who dies, but um, the, the, the other the, one, the blowhard guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, he's the one that somehow gets uh, nominated to fill Nick's seat on mm-hmm. the council, um, and everyone is immediately horrified, and it just made <laughs> me think, like, well, yep, that's yeah. the downside of democracy, right? Um, yeah. Welcome to our world, the stand. Um, but to, but I also think that there's a difference between, and the book does a pretty good job of this, between community and society. Because I think the book also argues that people aren't meant to be lonely and that they gravitate yeah. towards each other and we're, we're not meant to be alone. We're meant to communicate and to enrich each other and to keep each other safe and to nourish each other. But... On the other hand, when there are too many people in one spot, they just... Um, God, what line is that? It's from Gilmore Girls. You can't get too many wasps in one room together. They start to form more clubs. <laughs> right? And it just... The more people are around, the more cooks that are in the kitchen, which is not to say that the our characters have the right idea. Uh-huh. Right? It's not... I don't think that Stu Redman is inherently better I mean, yes, he is. But I don't think it's right that we should just find the people who are somehow the purest among us and let them make all the decisions because that way lies madness. But um, I do think that the book does a really good job of saying like, well, this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah. Because this is a nice thing. And they turn the power on and everyone is excited and they all come together and there are these wonderful things happening even with this ominous cloud on the horizon and even with the fucked up shit that's going on but then they just start to form more clubs yeah. and um i don't actually think that there is a happy medium i think w- you cannot have one without the other yeah uh, and that is what depresses me yeah. like there is utopia is impossible maybe mm. that's the argument of the stand there is no such thing as <laughs> utopia well yeah and I, I agree with you because like and King does this a lot where, you know, even even in the books where he focuses on small towns that you would think would be more pure and more like a better like oh, a better life in a small town than a city. No, it's got a huge underbelly of like darkness and seediness. And I just think it's also really sad. To, I, I was very melancholy at the end of the book, yeah. too. And and I was I was happy that they, they get out and they, they're able to go live in Maine or wherever they choose to go. Um, but at the same time, you know, the whole book's been about like finding if there's anyone else left out there and then just to to go off and be alone yeah at the end of it it's just kind of like wow like yeah when Stu says when they're sitting on the on the porch of Hemingford home at the end um Fran asks oh are you lonely and Stu says no but I might be and they and they and they always mention this idea of going back to Boulder um I love what you said about the small town seediness and, and that underbelly already being there um i wasn't on the sales lot episode but I, I decided i wanted to read all the books for the episodes i wasn't on just to catch up and it's really fun rereading them and so i reread sounds a lot the past couple weeks and i had forgotten about um i don't even know if you guys talked about him on, on the episode parkins gillespie or gillespie is the, oh, the sheriff oh yeah. yeah i don't think he, we talked about him. he he's not in the book a lot he's not a main character but it's this thing where he's at, he's actually like the first one to really realize they're vampires and he's the sheriff and he just kind of decides you know what Small towns are fucked. Like, the people are awful. I'm not even going to worry about this. I'm he just bails. Gonna, he bails. And, yeah. it's, and it's funny because, you know, they, they he frame... He too. No, he does. He's <laughs> like one, and, and they frame him like he's supposed to be this coward almost because Ben Mears even calls him out. He's like... Because he, he's like, oh, Sheriff, we need your help. And the Sheriff's like, oh, yeah, for the vampires? And they're like, oh, you, you know about that? And he's like, yeah, that's why I'm leaving. You should leave too. And Ben is like, you're a spineless you know, creep, you should help us out. And then Parkins Gillespie is kind of like, I mean, I'm once again paraphrasing, but he's kind of like, no, fuck you. 
this this town was awful before all this happened. Um, you know, there are all these secrets being kept. There are all our priorities are all screwed up. Maybe this is just the thing that happens, and it's best to go live your life. And he does. He gets in his police cruiser, and he goes to live with his sister and Kittery. And he's yeah, one of the only people who lives. And it got me thinking about the stand a little bit. I mean, Salem's Lot is on a much smaller scale. It's much more of a microcosm than the stand. But both books are about societies being torn down by a dark force. Um, and the stand is more about rebuilding. Salem's Lot never gets to that point. But I think what you're saying, I think, I think in a way, parking. Gillespie's Gillespie's on how you say it viewpoint is almost a um a more nihilistic take on what Fran and Stu realize at the end this idea yeah. that okay well yeah the worldwide or this disease wiped out 99% of the population but maybe we were kind of fucked before that mm-hmm. you know and that and that's a really really scary thought like mm-hmm. that that idea you said of there not being a happy medium between chaos and, yeah. and utopia and just like the idea that you know, the only way we know how to rebuild is to rebuild what we already know. Mm-hmm. And then I think what there's like, you know, one of the things they're trying to get at in this book is like, but what if there is another way, but it's so hard to find what that way is when you do not know what that is. You know, we immediately go back to what's comfortable or the things that made us comfortable in a previous life or whatever. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think that book three also does a great job of underlining maybe the best of humanity, the yeah. people who are willing to take a stand <laughs> right like i think the the moments that i find most affecting and one that i wasn't expecting at all and somehow it never came up so it was completely unspoiled for me through our conversations is um when whitney speaks up yeah mm. that just knocked my socks right off that's a little that's a little hero moment like a pure yeah. undiluted hero moment from someone who's kind of a shit and somehow that makes it sweeter yeah. You know, well, like and, I found that very affecting. And and it's funny because it ties back to this thing of, of we were talking about before, serving this greater good. And, and Mother Abigail even says at a certain point earlier on, like, oh, a flag is probably part of God's plan, even if he doesn't even know it. And Whitney, by doing that, I mean, that's that's what leads to the, the electricity. And that's what, of course, leads to the nuke going off. So oh, that's a good point. So yeah. just just by standing up to stand, stand, <laughs> um, standing up to flag and, and what, what's it? Yeah, you know, but by, but he he says something like this isn't how people act. What's wrong with you guys like this? You know, it's and he's he's helped. He I mean, he helped uh, uh, crucify his friend, heck, Drogan, Dorgan, Drogan. We'll we got to talk about that's those names, those names. Um, <laughs> He's he's helped crucify his friends, so Whitney's actually participated in a lot of these acts. And then the the time he decides to stand up and say, "No, this isn't right," that's what actually ends up leading to the mm-hmm. the greater good, you know. Um, and that that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> really quick, we should probably save this for um, the adaptations, but I had to say it. So, have you? Did any of you finish the stand comics? Uh, I've uh, not yeah. finished them yet, but I've been yeah, I finished it. All right, spoiler, Randall. This isn't that big of a deal, but. I hated this because Whitney's moment is so hard hitting. So in the comics, which are very true to the book, they don't have Whitney do that in the end. Whitney is a character, but it's not him who does that. It's uh, someone named Richard Bachman, and he's drawn to look exactly like Stephen King. He comes out and does it. And I guess maybe they're saying, oh, well, the architect of all this, yeah, he's the one who who ends up being the agent of change. But it is so... Because I love that moment for Whitney. I mean, it's the redemption arc of of his character. and. 
gross. It's, and they say that's like fuck it because he, he's also yeah. already Glenn, right? Yeah. Like he's Glenn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do we need two Stephen Kings? And it's like w- just before we started recording, listeners, uh, we were um, talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, and I don't know if it's all four of us who shared this opinion, but certainly three of us were. Mac, I want to know your thoughts or whoever wasn't talking about it. Um, <laughs> but man, we fucking hate those Stan Lee cameos, yeah. right? Oh yeah. It just what? It's just like a stinky armpit in a wonderful movie. I yeah. hate them so much i, I know it. that comics fans revere him and i understand why and he's great but he's but he's really bad on camera the worst one oh my i don't care this is a tangent that i'm allowed to have <laughs> the worst one is in agent carter where there's this very hard-hitting scene where Haley atwell who's a wonderful actress is talking about uh, this moment of intense betrayal um from Stark the Elder, and it's because it involves Captain America's blood, and it's awful. It's this awful, awful, very upsetting scene on a street corner while Stark is getting his shoes shined, basically. And then a paper folds down, and it's Stan Lee, and he says something like, can I have the sports section? Like something just, it's so terrible. It just, there's no reason for that shit. And he pauses and gives gives a wink to the camera. Ding. Yeah. It's it's fine in the Netflix shows. He's always just like a poster of a cup. I'm fine with that. Yeah. It's like only you can report forest fires, and only it's Stanley, and I am fine with that. <laughs> it's just the bullshit. Whenever it's like we're gonna stop the action now for an in joke that 10 percent of you care about. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of our listeners would probably agree. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't like the the Stanley cameos only because they've they've become. Um, much more noticeable and like flagrant now. Like it's just it's blatant and it takes it takes you out of the movie. Totally. Exactly. Whereas I feel like you know Mr. Stephen King has a has a I wouldn't even say a cameo, but he's in the stand the miniseries. Plays so that. you'll see he plays a character. But in that you, I don't mind it as much because unless it's not, you it's not it's, it's not cute. Yeah, he role. he plays a role and it's not like super. It's not like all of a sudden we keep focusing on yeah. King. You know he, he plays his role and it's there and it's. It's there, whatever. Margaret Atwood has a cameo in The Handmaid's Tale. It's blink and you'll miss it. But like Margaret Atwood's like, in The Handmaid's Tale, and that totally works for me. Like in Pet Cemetery and uh, and um, Sleepwalkers and stuff too, he pops up, but it's never like cute and winky. It's never the well, and, and the problem is the way he pops up in the this adaptation. Once again, in addition to taking away a moment from a character, yeah, because Whitney is not like a huge character, but he's it's a huge moment. It's a huge moment, and that it gets taken away, and I um, that. and also too, it, it goes back to the you're putting. It, I hate it when they put it in the scenes that ha- are supposed to have the most emotional weight. It's the same thing as Stanley in Civil War. Like, the end is supposed Ugh. to be this, like, emotional thing. Like, oh, man, War Machine's heard this. And then, oh, is, is Tony Dump there? What does he say? Tony Droney Stark? He, he like, says some, Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Tony's, I don't know. He, he, he shows up as the mailman, like, mispronounces Tony Stark. Uh, no, yeah. And, and uh, I, I would liken this to, like, if M. Night did the stand movie <laughs> he would absolutely be the one to come in and be like hey what you're doing is wrong and oh, I don't because know. He, he always writes himself into like like pivotal roles he's like that though. like like in this in signs and he's like he's like you know i, I don't know if they they like water you know he was like he's like oh you're going to give us the MacGuffin. like like <laughs> are you kidding like me well, you know, no his but like role in the sixth sense is fine no the sixth sense is great but that was also before anyone knew who he was you know like i didn't know that was in night when i first watched it unbreakable you know? in sixth sense is fine the, the worst is in lady in the water where he plays the writer and and, and he, they're like what's this he's like oh it's called the cookbook it's just my ideas on politics the world you know it ends up like saving the day like, <laughs> oh, uh, and again uh, let me yeah. just let me just start this off with 
I, I really love M. Night's, a lot of his movies in the beginning. I, I, just saying that out loud. Yeah. Because he's he's fallen off the, the, the boat for me. But I just, I don't like, the reason I don't like it in the comic, Dan, like you're saying, is because Whitney's one of those characters, again, one of those characters we've seen a little bit of in Vegas. And we know like, okay, not everybody there is just this awful human being. And he actually comes around and tries to do what's right. And to take that away from him and just to give it to like this blatant, you know, <laughs> King ripoff Bachman thing. It's just, it's like a stunt, you know, and it takes away from it. I, I actually think it's interesting um, that because Whitney's stand in a weird way dovetails with Lloyd's stand because Whitney approaches Lloyd basically saying, we're leaving. We, we're not in support of Flag. He's falling apart. We have to leave. You know, it's falling apart too. And Lloyd says, Lloyd feels that way too he understands he sees the cracks he's starting to doubt flag but what i love is even lloyd has his own stand where he says no i'm standing with flag because he believed in me and he helped me and he gave me a life that i never thought i could have he gave me power and he saved my life when i was you know at his lowest at his lowest like in a jail cell and he chose me like he made me feel special and so in a weird way like lloyd has that moment too where he refuses to abandon flag even though he sees the ship sinking but then he also in his final moments says oh thank god yeah, yeah. right yeah. before they're all blown to hell does yeah. he oh so he's he's yeah i'm gonna of... try to find the exact oh, wait, quote the, but the, i think he says i think he says we're fucked he, he does we're... but then he thinks oh thank god oh, I, don't remember. Oh, um, I shall not fear da, 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 da. i'm gonna find it right now man, i really crazy. i was like in spite of it uh in spite of it all it's um Oh, oh, so, oh, sh- oh, shit, we're all fucked, Lloyd Henry cried. He put his hands over his head and fell to his knees. Oh, God, thank God, Larry thought. I will fear no evil. I will f- silent white light filled the world. Oh, so but right? Larry thinks that then, not Lloyd. Oh, shit. shit. That almost confused me. <laughs> oh. I was so happy for Lloyd. No, I'm going to say, though, like, in a weird way, I like that you brought that up. because. God damn it. It's okay. Is, no, 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 it's like, I... I wouldn't be surprised if that was true in Lloyd's head. Like, yeah. it's like, I actually like that you say that because I feel like that, and I feel like maybe the reason you thought that is because in a lot of ways it does, it does align with where Lloyd's character it is. It feel, at. that felt very authentic yeah. to me. And, like, and I, obviously, first of all, huge pet peeve. Please, if characters are going to sell, share major scenes together, start their names with different fucking I letters. Know, right? I read so <laughs> fast. I don't have time for this shit. Just oh, like, have, name him something else. Yeah, and we have a, a, we have a big pound cake later. And when it comes to names, which you hinted at earlier, but we're oh, going to get there. I'm so excited to talk about oh, that. Boy. It's but, ridiculous. But I'll say that, um, no, but it's like, Let's talk about another stand too, uh, and that would be Harold Lauders. Like, how do we? What stand does he have in those? Are we in moving into zeros and villains? No, I think okay. this is on themes. I think yeah. this is on. Okay, themes cool. Still. Yeah, and I, so with Harold, um, it's funny because I know that last time you guys talked about his nickname Hawk and how, and and I think a couple of you were laughing at it. I think Mike or someone. I think it's Mike. Is like, yeah, oh, but I, it's, I like it's a pretty that. cool name. No, and it, well, and 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 it does. <laughs> I. First off, side it's note, like taser face. The, <laughs> taser oh, man, man, C minus, but uh, no, no, no. Um, it was funny because the first day we started recording, um, the the first episode, of the stand was at my house, and I had to go get some medication for my dog, whose name is Hank. Uh, um, right before we recorded, and they accidentally prayed his name as Hawk, like on the prescription. <laughs> so I was like, ooh. Anyway, um, with Harold, I mean, you guys talked in 
in length about Harold now, and, and I agree with all of it. Like, I think he's he's arguably the most complex character, mm-hmm. and I think the stand that he finally takes is, in a weird way, he finally decides to embrace his best self, right? Yeah. Like his goodness. I mean, his whole conflict in book two, and it's the saving grace of book two, is that he he realizes, wow, I could start over here and. I could be this good person here and people respect me and all I all I have to do is let go of my insecurities and that shitty old self that where I was jealous and um, petty and everything else and he can't do it and he doesn't do it even when they blow up the house um, and they kill Nick and all that. The only time he really comes to that realization is when he's writing in his um, in his journal at the end mm-hmm. or his ledger at the end when he's dying and he signs it Hawk and I know it's such a brief moment but for me, the stand he's taking is finally embracing his true self, and uh, I don't know, that resonates with me. See, Matt, I, I, Kelsey, I don't, though. I don't think I didn't think that. No, because I felt like if he was, that would be this inner monologue that happens with him, and then you know he blows his head off. <laughs> but because he went out of his way to like write it and like sign his name Hawk and stuff, it, to me that just felt like he was still oh. trying to, you know, prove that. Or, or, or just or needed the validation that, you know, oh, well, hopefully someone will find this and, and know that I turned good at the end. You know, and it was mm. just like, uh, That's uh, interesting. I'll, I'll say this, like, kind of in the middle of what you guys are saying, I think that Harold never really was able to get over the things that really undid him, which is his own sense of uh, uh, the fact that he doesn't feel appreciated, that he is um, a genius who, you know, never really got his due and so on and so forth, because... Uh, you know, when he realizes that Nadine isn't going to help him, he tries to kill her. He points his gun at her. And the only, and you know, uh, flag is very clear on the fact that, you know, if he hadn't blocked the bullet, then he would have killed Nadine. But it's like, that's Harold's first instinct is to kill the woman who betrays him uh, or kill the person who betrays him. And it's only as he's lying there dying. I think he, he, I think he, he maybe doesn't have a moment of self-actualization where he, uh, you know, sort of, you know, accepts and embraces kind of a new, truer, more, uh, you know, the good parts of himself. I think he just wants, I think it's a moment that he, it's a person that he knows he can't be, but when he writes it down and says, I was misled and signs it Hawk, it's like, maybe I can be remembered this way Mm. in this one moment. It's like, I am not this person, but, you know... If I kill myself in this moment after I've written this note, maybe I can freeze myself well, as this person. There, I pulled up the section, and there are a couple things that to me seem to indicate it's maybe like a first step. Yeah. Um, and this is going back to the old toxic masculinity, right? Because yes. I think that's part of it. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but King writes, dying, he felt as if he had gained a little sanity and maybe even a little dignity. He did not want to demean that with small excuses that would come limping off the page on crutches. Mm. And I think that the idea that you can go, no, I was a shit. I was wrong. Not this is what the world made me. And I was misled is a little bit that, right? But it's also true. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, also, he's 16. I mean, he's yeah. 16. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's also true. But there's something um, that I think is the beginning of a good person when he says, I did these wrong things and I will not deny that I did them of my own free will. Yeah. Um, and that is pretty powerful to me. And I don't think it means that he's somehow transformed into a righteous person, but I do think it's the indication that had circumstances been different, if he had come to this realization without a leg that, uh, quote, <coughs> uh, 
had swelled up like an inner tube. It smelled like gassy, overripe bananas. I know, it's so yeah. gross. Anyway, that maybe there would have been some sort of redemption um, in the vein of Larry's redemption, Yeah. right? Yeah, Yeah. no, and, and I agree. I, I think I think that the saddest thing, like Dan just mentioned, this is a kid. Right, it's mm-hmm. easy to forget that. And yeah, it's so easy to forget that when you're reading this. And like, God, 16-year-old me, yeah, I... I I still don't have things figured out. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and also, you know, when you're on your deathbed, you know, it's it's easy to see things as black and white, and and you know, like what really matters. So, well, I, maybe I, maybe had had, and I, I wish that he had come to that. You know, when he was alive, when he was making you know, real decisions. But I, I guess at the end, you know, maybe there well, was a little hope for him. I but think he's taking a stand you know, against himself in a way. Uh, also, and I do like, it's funny hearing all of our different perspectives on Harold. Um, although we, we are on a little bit opposite ends of the spectrum. I do like what Max said too, about he's still going out in his final moments as a writer. And, and we're all writers here. I don't, I don't care who you are, how to give a, per- a person you are when you're writing something, especially about yourself on the page, you're cer- you're still cultivating a certain image for a narrative for yourself, right? Like even if you post like a really endearing Facebook post about your grandmother dying you're still in like facebook mode which is different than your a little bit different than your normal self so even and i think it is possible to have both like he has the change but he is um still present it's like the end of the pillow man where it's like okay well this is how i want to be remembered you know i don't know if if justin mentioned this in a prior podcast but hi justin hi justin (laughs) um do they find when they find harold Mm -hmm. do they see the note or has it blown away? Or was that just something people were like, well, it would have been really cool if they, when they found him, that note wasn't That's there. That's a good point. Did they mention it? I don't I know don't if they remember. did. I don't remember them mentioning it. Could, it maybe could have been one of those things, too, where King, either the note or them finding him was added later on, and maybe he just didn't sync up the two. I would but, hope but that I they like, did find but it. But see, yeah, that's, that's the thing. Is I, I, I kind of like that if they found him, maybe the note had blown away, and yeah. you know, it was like, well, you get your best shot, but even they, they didn't even see it. You know yeah. what I mean? So it was like... I don't know. That that's interesting to me because you know, then no one will know, but but he knew yeah. that he made that decision. So I don't know. It's one of those those strange things. But yeah, Harold's a a complicated guy. Yeah. So I just looked it up, and uh, Harold they when they find Harold, he's still clutching the notebook in his hand. But there's a specific mention of them taking the gun out of his mouth, and no reference to the notebook at all. So they may not even take the notebook. I think that they might not even open it. I think if they opened it, we would know. And yeah. I, so they don't. And I think that's about as fitting an ending for Hawk yeah. as you could have. We're Ow! still writing things that no one's going to fucking read. Right. And I don't think if I was one of them, I, I wouldn't want to read it. No. And, and and what is that going to reading that again, reading that him saying, you know, oh, I was misled you know, Hawk. You know, I'd be like, who the hell's Hawk? <laughs> like, when, I mean, they didn't. I mean, well, I guess they knew, but <laughs> and they already know that they already know that Harold's ledger is so filled with hate. And and just lies and just yeah i mean well and and Stu still ends up feeling like he wants to avenge harold as much as he wants to avenge anyone yeah um and i think he'd known him for so long and he saw him when he was a pimply faced right you know overprotective dork and he sort of you know i feel like maybe there's a small part of Stu that feels like maybe i could have you know Maybe I could have helped usher him down a different path. Too, yeah, I think he, Larry feels that way. Yeah, too. Larry feels that way too. And that you know, I, I know we've talked about this in the podcast before, but it's it's so I'm always very struck. Just many parts of Harold's story always really hit me, but just I always get very struck by just the disappointment Larry like probably feels because he thought Harold was so like 
he like thought of him as such a hero and then to like kind of witness this you know the reality and the downfall and all these things like the disappointment he much he must feel is to me like a very melancholy kind of thing yeah but i also think like like you said with harold like it, it speaks volumes of of like the Harold that could have been. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Larry saw him and he, he did all these great things on the trip and he was so smart and, you know, he, he, he potentially led a lot of people via his notes and mm-hmm. things on barn, you know, doors and whatnot, yeah. uh, led a lot of people probably to save passage to, to Boulder. Yeah. And it's just sad that like he had so much hate in him. Have any of you watched The Good Place? Mm-mm. First of all, you should. It's fucking amazing. Second... That's you too out there. You should watch The Good Place. It's great. You can catch up now. It'll be back Is next season. Is that the show season. with Ted Danson and yeah, Kristen Bell? Yeah, and Kristen yeah. Bell. It's oh, great. No, no, yeah. It's um, Michael Shore who ran mm. Parks and Rec. Um, anyway, there's the central concept is that uh, when you die, there's essentially a ledger of all your deeds, and this is mostly played for laughs, but it's like um, held up the line at a pizza place because I couldn't decide on ingredients, and that gets you like negative 17 points. <laughs> or like didn't talk to people about your exercise regimen, that gets you like 150 points. Um, but it feels a little bit like that would sort of apply to Harold, right? Like if we were going to try to break down all of Harold's deeds, um, would it be a net positive or a negative? You know, he blew up. Killing Nick Andros is a great big negative. negative. But if you think all of the people that he guided out of loneliness and despair and potentially death into some place safe through his actions, it just makes you wonder, like, all those individual little lives, that small gesture, do those tiny things all add up to cancel out this one big thing? Well, I think if, if you're viewing it as a civilian in Boulder or a civilian in general probably maybe not but if if you're viewing it from like mother abigail's god who knew that he was only doing all that to deceive them and then eventually you know well i guess you know he didn't really do you know he didn't really deceive them until he was at boulder no yeah he, you know the, i mean like i guess all that stuff was really well-intentioned this, from the get-go the far the sign on the farm and the sign at stovington and the signs on the highway i think that, that was all genuine yeah. i mean uh, i mean and granny's trying to impress franny through a lot of it but it was still I would argue he probably saved more people than he killed. He may have killed a few of the people he saved too in the house, you know, because yeah. <laughs> it's like, I love how it's like Sue Stern, Nick Andrews, and and then a bunch of people we don't give a just, shit about. Uh, yeah, like people that we've heard about. Well, no, it's funny is uh, one of them is Teddy Wyzak, and yeah. but King sure doesn't kill him in the movie because no. he's playing him. You know? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and uh, my rule is I don't die. <laughs> it, it's funny too because I read I read this interview with King that was saying he wrote the explosion at Harold and Nadine's bomb. He wrote that at a point where he was suffering writer's block for the book and he couldn't figure out how to get out of it. And he, he said, oh, all I need to do is kill half of my support, my main cast to do it. And I'm like, no, you killed two. You, <laughs> you killed one really main character and one kind of main character. Yeah. Maybe he meant the fallout from like Harold and Nadine, but I was like, no, did you, you put a bunch of straw men in there that we didn't give a shit about. Yeah, but Nick's a big enough character that... He know. is. He loves well, and I really like Susan, too. Susan so, you know, is, a yeah. smaller character, but she gets one. She gets... Uh, she becomes Sue. a composite character in the movie. She's not bad. It's, it's actually McGarris's wife. She's quite good as Sue Stern, but as a character, she gets... She doesn't have the strength that no. she does in the, in the novel, unfortunately. Um, speaking of strength, I think there's a real robustness to the structure. Look at me. Look at me. 
structure is almost kind of like we've gone back to the Bible. Like now that now that everybody's on a journey again, mm-hmm. you know, it's like this this. I mean, everybody is pretty much well, that that we continue with. You know, we've got the four on the journey to Vegas. We've got Nadine and Harold on their journey to Vegas. We've got the spies, mm-hmm. and then even after the fact, when we we've got Stu and and Tom on the way back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, it's 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 like <laughs> the things that they endure and the things that they have to do to you know you know i guess well not nadine and harold but to prove themselves to well, there's to, such to, a relentless momentum to the third book that i feel like was really missing in the second book which yeah. is purposeful absolutely because they were settling in the second mm-hmm. book so it's naturally going to be you know I, a slower journey but in the third book i feel like the only like you know because it's not like there's a lot of time that goes by once they arrive in vegas then they're thrown in jail cells flag comes to visit them uh, Glenn it's gets killed. It's and within then, a day, right? It's, yeah, it's so quickly. And then the only real moments of I feel like uh, uh, stasis that we get is um, is with Viz sitting with Stu um, in the break in the highway or wherever mm-hmm. that hole that he's in with uh, Kojak. Because those and those scenes are almost hard because you do feel the sense of like like move, stop sitting there. You have if you sit there, you're going to die because the whole uh, everyone else is constantly moving throughout. That. I I love the well it's weird I but I love the the structure of this third book um, because like I said before I think it redeems some of the more sluggish aspects of, of book two however I you know you guys talked about how okay we fo- I mean it's it's pretty much the Vegas section of the book even though we we go I mean we don't see the free zone until Stu Tom and Kojak get back like we don't see anything in the free zone mm-hmm. at all we have no idea what's going on back there until they get back we don't know if the baby's born we don't know if it's healthy blah blah blah. Um, I do love all that. What you guys said before about, oh, well, we get to see the goodness of the, of some of the people in Vegas. I agree with that. I still wish we had more of it. Yeah. I, still, I, I w- if, if book two is the Boulder Free Zone book and book three is the and the Vegas book, and we're not we're not going to intertwine the two. I wish Vegas was a little bit more well balanced than uh, than it than um, it is right now, and we do see a little bit of Vegas, I think, in book two, right? Because only tra- a little bit, just with uh, and trash. And they even do the thing because because tra- trash came in has that realization that you guys had of of wow, these people are all really nice, and then a few pages later they do the crucifixion. Yeah. And I just wish we had. I wish book three, as much as it moves, and as much as by that point, because of the god awful free zone committee stuff. You're you're anxious for it to get going and get to the climax. I still I I do think Vegas gets a little bit of the short end of the stick, but I wouldn't feel that way if book two wasn't so long. If, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think um, reading it for the first time, I, the surprise that not everybody there was a Lloyd, um, and then also that there were sort of untold depths for Lloyd mm-hmm. um, was enough of a surprise for me that it felt really big. Mm. So you didn't, um, you didn't the fact that there the, were yeah. kids there. Like that alone. And they're all dead. Yeah, I know. Little Denny, more like little Deddy, because he's uh, <laughs> oh boy, blown to smithereens. Oh, Sorry, Denny. Um, blown to smithereens. <laughs> I like Nailed to think it. Denny got out. <laughs> yeah, Denny. <laughs> anyway, that there are that there are nice people that um that the people that Denny loves are Tom Cullen yeah. and Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Um, those details to me were so surprising that it really felt um, like a big revelation. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting it. It's painted, 
And the fact that they choose Las Vegas, right? It's painted so much as like the city of light and the city of darkness that when we were finally getting to spend time there, I expected everybody to be terrible. But really, it's like Julie Lowry is terrible. (laughs) Oh, your favorite one. Yeah, and and we get a little more Julie in this. And so that for you makes... Got some pound cake on her. (laughs) So that that for you makes up for the imbalance a little bit of, of Vegas being, I guess, more of a condensed section and bolt like there's enough there are enough surprises in in vegas to where the length doesn't bother you as opposed to where with boulder where there's like no surprises and it's yeah just, i yeah. tore through book three yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know this is a kind of maybe a weird way to describe it but there for me there's like a sweatiness to book three mm-hmm. it's like i i felt it's a, it's it feels it moves at such a fast pace and when even when it's not moving at a fast pace and you're dealing with stew baking in the sun uh, he's got a fever. He's like running a fever. He's got a broken leg. I remember it's like there's this sense of um, this like this perspiration and like body odor kind of sense to book three. I know that's totally crazy, but it's what like his trash can man on, on yeah, the that's four what I was, I was right about to get overripe to that too. bananas. <laughs> yes, Ugh. it's like everyone's it's, bacon. Everyone's bacon in the sun. Like literally, trash can man is literally like his skin is peeling <laughs> off. And Nadine, Nadine too. The way they describe that is like horrifying like the way that they describe what's happening in knitting one in her white hair too yeah. against the pink skin and yeah it's like so nasty and, and then just obviously the description which we'll get to of um her and flags uh consummation um oh, everybody seems to be in massive amounts of pain like throughout the third book mm-hmm. um and uh toil and it's you know and even the deaths themselves are really gruesome the way uh judge ferris um, dies the way Bo- uh, Flag kills uh, uh, Bobby Terry, which I'm, we'll get to in the cemetery. Even Glenn, me. too. There's Glenn, a lot of that. Dana. His face disappears. Dana's, oh, Dana's, yeah, Dana's, Dana's, Dana's death is so gross the way they describe it. It's like, you know, there's there's just this sense of, um, I guess that's what I like about book three in a lot of ways is that it's gruesome, it's sweaty, it's fast, it's like, it's the heartbeat is racing during it, and um, I, you know, like you said, I, I devoured the yeah. third book. Yeah. Bloodletting. I do want to say one quick, I know we, we don't have a ton to talk about structure-wise for this one, but there's uh, one thing that's kind of the opposite of that, it's not so the very, it's the, the Stu and Tom chapters, yeah. which are, it's, the dust has settled, and yeah. I, I, I didn't notice this when I was younger when I, when I read it, but... I love the scenes of them holed up in the motel watching. Was it Rambo one or was it like, the, or is it First Blood or is it like one of the other I think Rambo it's a movies? I think it's First Blood Part Two. Yeah, I love that like, <laughs> best title. I, but there's something I love about there's some there's always there's only to me with King King does this so well in all of his books, even his lesser ones. He describes characters doing tasks and manual yeah. labor so well, yeah. and just Stu, who's still kind of maimed at that point. You know, him having to haul this projector out yeah. and get this snowmobile started and and then teach Tom how to do some of this stuff. There's something I love at that point because book three's moves so fast of them just doing these very common tasks but it being very difficult. And then, I, I don't know, man, the... I love being holed up during the winter watching movies, and there's just that there's just that like reward for that. Yeah. Like, man, these guys get to enjoy a nice Christmas together, and they're watching Rambo. And, and it feels like a reward. Like they, yeah, really I love that. that. Yeah, it's so good. I, yeah. Well, that sort of ties in with the thought that I had structurally, which um, it wasn't until after I finished it that these things popped out of me. But it feels like in book three, there's a lot of. Um, there are a lot of parallels between individual stories. Like this, what Stu goes through is the long version of what Harold goes through. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, with the, uh, leg, the leg, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and being like stuck and in one place, even though you know that disaster is coming for you. And like, yeah. what can you do? And they make different choices. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and how much of what Stu decides to do comes out of discovering Harold. Um, Dana and Nadine's deaths are sort of oddly similar. The, with the window, With the too, window, I yeah. Um, it feels a little bit like um, Trash Can Man and Tom Cullen have kind of a similar thing where they're yeah. both racing. They have a realization in some part, of, like primal part of their brain that they can't completely understand. Yeah. And they have to race forward to whatever it is they're being called to do. Oh, that's a good point. Um, and I found that so neat. Like it, it was just, and it wasn't overwhelming. It didn't hit me over the head. It again, didn't occur to me until after I finished the book and I was sort of reflecting on the individual characters. And then these parallels started to pop out. Um, and I, I find that really wonderful. No, that's, that's a great, and it's funny too, because the characters you all compared there, you know, one of them is from the free zone and one of them is from Vegas and that, that it's, Man, that's super. I'm sorry. I'm. Just, I never realized that. I, I. I thought about the window thing being similar, but even if you think thematically, they're both. They're both female characters who tricked Flag and are doing things that he didn't foresee coming. You know, like they're and then yeah, and Tom and Trash like both answering to a higher power they don't understand. And that's a man. That's like a really good with the women. It's also after um, s- sexual encounters that they find in one case like debilitatingly oh, terrifying God, yeah. <laughs> and in the other just incredibly gross, unwelcome gross. Yeah. but like pr- participated in willingly yeah. because if, of the means uh, I know we have some listeners who are professors and teachers which is awesome who teach King in their class so uh, maybe maybe that's uh, something to put in the study guide for the stand if you're yeah, yeah. if you're teaching the stand kudos to you awesome. I, I suspect that if anybody's listening is teaching the stand right now they're going well yeah <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I, I the only thing I thought was the window thing with, with Dana and Nadine but uh, I, thematically, I didn't think of that any of that until you just said it. So that's that's awesome, I think. Oh, and the other one that occurred to me was um, was Glenn and Whitney mm-hmm. having like a similar oh, yeah. standing up, and they uh, they're again from opposite camps. Only, See, I like this. Yeah, thing. No, <laughs> no. O- only Glenn's last name would need to be Borgen or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because if only Harold had had a dog and a a Tom you know like maybe he wouldn't have blown his head off you know Trash Can Man Trash Can Man finds Harold it's just like the most fucked Uh, up chapter Harold and Trash Can Man coming this fall that's that's sort of a funny thing like uh, I love I guess that's another thing I like about book three I, I don't know if this really necessarily ties into structure but we get to see certain characters together that we never thought we'd see together and that's like a really fun moment like I love sort of even the tension of just seeing like Julie Laurie and Lloyd Henry together you know it's like these characters that come from we've met them in such different ways and then you bring them in together it's watching Tom Cullen engage with you know any number of the people from Vegas and the way that they're actually pretty nice to him aren't they I was gonna say I really wanted to see like Lloyd and Tom like hang out because doesn't Denny say that his two favorite people are Tom and Lloyd Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. which I was like that also puts Lloyd in another light for me Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. which was like wow like maybe on some other plane of existence they would have you know it's like I think with Lloyd too I think being in a situation like this where he has power and he's kind of overseeing a community to some kind of degree I think it's bringing out because he says that he loves the fact that the kids are uh, that there's educational opportunities for the kids and that he takes a lot of pride in that and then also that he gets along so well with the children I think it's just sort of you know it's bringing out this inner caregiver in him because he's not a like he's a sadist when we first meet him like, oh he's, he's a nasty, nightmare yeah but he's very level headed and very put together when we encounter him in the third book but Randall you either had to play like deleted scene from the stand it's just it's Tom and Lloyd watch babysitting Denny for an <laughs> afternoon it's just it's just the two of them watching like talk about life and stuff and, it's like, like the, that's, a, that's a very Twin Peaks moment 
like, yeah. literally right by the yeah. stand. It's like Dick Tremaine and Andy Bryan with little yeah. Mickey. It's it really literally is. the worst storyline like, in Twin Peaks. Like, if, if, if the stand was ever in HBO, you know how you know how on a lot of really good television shows, like in Breaking Bad, you have the, the fly episode, which is kind of a short play in itself. Oh, and yeah. don't you talk shit about the and fly to me. No, no, no. no. I, love, oh, good, I love it. Good, no, good. And, yeah. and on Girls, you have you have the boys episode, and you also have the Patrick Wilson oh, episode. Oh, we talking about bottle episodes? Bottle yeah. episodes. Yeah, what, there are so some great ones. If they did a, they did a uh, Stan miniseries for HBO. Not even a miniseries. I, I argued that you could do probably a like a three season series. Yeah. On the stand. Oh yeah. You I do agree. that, and it's like so true. The book, except they have one bottle episode. <laughs> so it's just like Tom and Lloyd, like yeah, Denny shares a little scamp, isn't he? Like I'm on one. That's a little scamp. Oh, Lloyd, son of a bitch. It, it'll like, it'll start with the theme from Saved by the Bell, the College Years. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you know, I honestly think something like that could work, and that's I'm gonna start talking about The Handmaid's Tale again because it's on my brain all the time now. But something that that ad- adaptation is doing that's really interesting is that that's not a long book, and it's gonna be at least two seasons. It because it's already renewed. Yeah. Because um, Hulu's not stupid, and they have a giant hit finally, <laughs> and so they're not an idiot. But with Margaret Atwood's input and blessing and participation, they're um, sort of expanding on the, the world of the novel. Mm-hmm. So things are happening in the series that happen pretty late in the book to some of the characters who, after it happens, then you don't see them again. Um, but we're getting backstory on them as well as what happens to them after they disappear from this one character's perspective in the novel. Um, we're getting lots of uh, scenes from before the transformation of government and before the implementation mm-hmm. of the system. Um, and it's great. It's incredibly rich. It's like um, the best bonus content you could ever want because none of it feels extraneous. It all just feels like... Some novels are better when they're a little bit lean. And my God, I don't think The Stand could be any longer. But with characters this well-developed, yeah. certainly a series could be longer. Oh, yeah. Well, if you like can take left- your time, you get to learn more about yeah. people. And What you're yeah. saying about uh, Handmaid's Tale is like The Leftovers, too. Because The Leftovers is like 300-page book at most. Mm-hmm. And uh, they made three seasons out of it because yeah. they did exactly that. Might be four. Oh, really? supposed to be the last season, but... Um, Damon Lindelof did an interview with a couple of weeks ago, I think, with um, Matt Zoller Seitz. And um, in the interview, he was like, hey, just so you know, I got a call today that this might not be the last season. And it that call happened the day that uh, your piece came out about why we should have leftover season four. So it might be you. Yeah, <laughs> right? So it might be because Matt Zoller Seitz wrote this piece about how we needed a leftover season four and now we might get one. Hey, that scares me. Matter, I guess. Because I love leftovers. Yeah. But it's one of those things where, you know, maybe it was should have just been three seasons. Like, what if four just is not know. good? I don't know. I mean, three has been incredible. No, I've, I've loved three so far. But, I think they're on a roll. But, I want ten seasons of The Stand. Look, Danny, you think I want a whole season devoted to Julie we see, we see a spinoff, Denny, Denny's Adventure. <laughs> Denny's Adventures in the Desert. Denny's de- <laughs> Desert Adventures because he escaped. He's not, yeah. He's not okay, on. what's one thing, just one thing you would want to see in a ten season Stan series. I I've said this before. I would love an episode where we see some of the people who didn't go to Flag or Mother Abigail. Just what's happening? Maybe it's overseas. Even I don't know. I I've, I've, oh, the book for as epic as it is, it's very insular in that it only deals with people who went to these two camps. I would love to see the um a, a, an episode about survivors um who do, who are like. I'm not gonna go to fucking Boulder, Vegas. Like I, I don't like these dreams. I'm just gonna go you know to. What episode uh, I want is one whole episode devoted to Harold Lauder after his parents and sister die and before he hooks up with Franny. Yes, oh, yes. Oh, I want that now. Yeah, Dan, don't worry because if the stand's a hit, 
you're going to get a, a second series, you know, spinoff, <laughs> oh, totally. you know, like The Walking Dead did, where it's like, yeah. oh, well, what happened to these people on the other side? It was like all the same shit. You know, like, it's just gonna be the same It'll thing. be called Fear the Stand. They, 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 need yeah. like, they need to have, like, flags, like, twin brother or something leading people. Oh, and he's oh like, boy. Yeah, he's like, 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 what? Go, I'm, I'm Randolph Bag. <laughs> <laughs> And the then, flag yeah. you didn't know. Yeah, like they're just, they're, he's just like the goofy sidekick, but yeah. Well, now that we're talking about fictional characters, <laughs> maybe we should talk about some real characters yeah. in a little section we like to call Zeros and Villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! <laughs> Let's just talk about Randall Flagg. I think it's a good idea. He, it's so interesting to me because, you know, again, I grew up with the miniseries and where he is very much an otherworldly creature who, who honestly, even in his entrance, you just think he's just appeared. He's not been here before. He's just appeared now. And now he's going to be like on this little journey in the book. It's so strange. I mean, we have these chapters with him in, in book three, where we 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 kind of know that he's been around like he, he he was born and has been living in on this earth and he's always had these kind of strange powers and you know can levitate but you know only do some kind some bits and pieces of magic i, I don't know it's a very strange character he well, well cuz what are his powers confirmed to be we he can levitate he can turn things into keys he can <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you, if you had a training card it's like powers levitation transmogrification turning things into keys no uh, but he uh, does he actually become a crow or does he just take go into like a crow or a wolf or whatever I can't I, no he, he, he goes, goes he, he can turn into it yeah I guess you're right I mean I think he can turn oh he's got things. feathers on well because yeah. yeah when he sees that when he meets up with but uh, he the also old... can uh, send his eye out like Sauron yeah, Lord of the Rings. Like and he can. Yeah. Yes, and that's what's interesting to me is because it to me, I always pictured Flag as this like the villain, mm-hmm. and I also did in the Dark Tower. But we'll get on, <laughs> we'll jump to the Dark Tower later. But because of that, all that talk about like how the the ever seeing eye, you know, and like oh, I could feel him watching me like from you know Vegas, et cetera, et cetera. But when when we see his character through his eyes, he's always like, "Oh, I can only levitate like I'm an inch <laughs> off the ground today." You know, he's not. He doesn't seem very all knowing, all evil. You know, he seems very human, and mm-hmm. and in a way, I like that because it's 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 kind of creepy. You know, he's very fallible. And when I mean, they even when Glenn sees him finally, he's yeah. like, "This is a joke. We've been afraid of you, and you're just some some joker with a well, jean jacket." It's funny because um, I. All right, I'm going to try and say this without spoiling too much in the Dark Tower for those of you who haven't read it. But if, if you have, maybe, I don't know, don't listen to this yeah, part. Jump, but o- jump, jump the, a couple minutes. A, a big, because of something that happens to Flag um, in the Dark Tower series, he's, he's in it quite a bit, but because of this one specific thing that happens, there there are a lot of fans who have a problem with that. Um, and and their reasoning is, like you just said, oh, he's supposed to be King's big baddie and... and this dumb thing happens to him. Now, I see where that's coming from because I, I, growing up, I always associate him as the ultimate you know, manifestation of evil. However, rereading it, I think in the third book, he's very much presented as the tin god. You know, He's yep. presented as having Absolutely. all these flaws. And so going back to what happens in the Dark Tower, this one event I'm talking about, it doesn't bother me as much. I'm like, oh, I actually think he set the stage pretty well for that. And like Mother Abigail, his downfall is pride. He thinks... He assumes he's going to know everything that happens, and he doesn't. He assumes that people are going to listen to him, and they don't. 
Um, I mean, it always almost does become laughable the last half of the book, like nothing's going right for him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you guys think about that? To me, um, he seemed kind of like a Rumpelstiltskin, right? Yeah. At one point, uh, Mother Abigail calls him an imp, mm-hmm. and maybe that's kind of what put it in my head. Mm-hmm. But um, part of what made book three so satisfying was the fact that he was able to, to occasionally be outsmarted, despite his abilities... Um, his otherworldly abilities, the fact that um, that they sent Tom Cullen, whose mind w- can't be penetrated in the same way, and who someone like like Flag would obviously dismiss as being not a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that Dana is able to outsmart him mm-hmm. in her final moments and to see through. And we'll get to Dana. Oh, yeah, I love we'll Dana. get to Dana. Yeah. Um, but that she's able to see through this um, ruse that he concocts for her. Even Harold, because Harold does things that he doesn't, that Flag doesn't expect. That's not part of the plan. Yeah. And so does Nadine. You know? And it feels like um, a little bit like Rumpelstiltskin being tricked into someone that seems like he's got it all figured out and there's a trap that can't be broken. And something as simple as a trick um, could throw him not only off his path to victory um but into a temper tantrum every time flag has a temper tantrum it's kind of scary but mostly really satisfying because it's like a child having a fit because he doesn't get his way and it makes him less scary more interesting but less scary and to me i I prefer that anyway reminds me of someone else i know right now (laughs) uh, what kylo ren (laughs) (laughs) exactly it's really like he just it's like he with this whole situation to stand, what's kind of funny about it is it's almost like he bit off more than he could chew. You yeah. Know? yeah. Well, because he, cause you have to remember, too, he isn't the one who um, who causes Project Blue to happen. He takes advantage of it, for He's sure. Opportunistic, He's opportunistic. Yeah. He's very opportunistic, and he, ta- he takes advantage of chaos and his, um, you know, it, it, the way the Joker is like an agent of anarchy, but if you think about his ultimate control, he yeah, he's, he's a showman. He's taking advantage of things, but he's not... Um, I think in the beginning of the the first two books, we think he is because we haven't seen things from his point of view. We haven't seen him fail yet. We think he is the ultimate, you know, man. I would say something like a creature like Pennywise is more of the, you know, the ultimate, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. personification of evil and fear. But even him, his, um, you know, um, his questionable downfall in the and it, it has to do with dismissing things that you think are weaker than you and they're actually not um yeah and, and also too I, I think the issue though with flag is that there 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 is some conflicting history for people who've read him in other books and i think this once again just comes from king retconning things like he i don't think flag was supposed to be flag in a lot of these other books he appears in and yeah. you you know you if you read the dark tower series you eventually find out like the exact childhood of flag and where he came from and grew up but here he doesn't remember where he's from uh, he has these vague memories and, well, and that that's me is also a whole beam thing like like mm-hmm. maybe on this path this version of flag maybe maybe he's existing in multiple planes at the same time or something and that's why he doesn't his memories so scattered but that's getting onto a whole other yeah. thing. Um, I will say also with flag though um, I thought it was interesting that even King like was it in the anchor books, uh, page, uh, <laughs> thank you, Mike. Uh, I think it's page 982. The one it. with the cover that looks like World War II. Uh, I think it's page 982. King and, and flags thinking this, but he thinks, um, it's here where I'll make my stand. He's also making a stand, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. He says those words. I mean, yeah. he, he, he senses like anyone else 
that this big event is is about to happen. How do you guys feel this? I mean, it's it's such an afterthought almost because I still think I like um, student Frank's conversation as being the final note of the book. But how do you feel about that added uh, epilogue with Flag waking up on the beach um, and uh, you know take essentially meeting a group of natives, r- recognizing that he can control them, and then at the end you get the idea that this will start over again. Like wh- I don't know, does that add anything to the book for you guys, or is it just kind of a little fun thing at the end? I um I always love when any piece of art ends with some sort of like zing that mm-hmm. tells you what's next, um, even if we don't see it. So in that respect, I like it, but I wish it had been one sentence long. It's not like King doesn't know how to craft a sentence that's so good that you don't need anything else. Like yeah. if it had been the children were on the beach and a dark man walked toward them, all of this would happen again or something like that. Right. I mean, that's a shitty sentence, but um, <laughs> if he had found some way to compress that epilogue into like a sentence, two sentences, maybe a paragraph, then I would have been all for it. Yeah. But to me, it felt a little bit like it overstated its welcome. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think King definitely figures that out later on in other books. He kind of does that with, particularly but I don't want to give it away. Um, yeah, I know what you're t- yeah, it's But great. yeah, I, for me, I, I always kind of loved that and I was actually look, really looking forward to reading it because I, I think Justin had told me a long time ago before I had read the book that that actually happens. I think it was like after we saw the miniseries because um, I was like, well, he flies away. What happened? You know, and then, you know, he was like, oh, well, actually, you know, in the uncut version. But to me, like you were just saying, Dan, it kind of takes away from it because if he is just like this guy that's taking advantage of the situation, then... Him like lording himself over these these you know these natives that don't understand the power or are confusing him, and like all of this is going to happen again makes it sound like he was the reason why all of it happened in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And it's like no, he's just like yeah, he's gonna take advantage of these people, and I guess it's it's saying like well the dark man still exists because good still exists and it's very legend in that way, mm. and that's cool and I, I do like it and I like that artwork at the end, but for oh, yeah, me I feel really like. Cool. Yeah. Ending with this Stu Franny, the the we'll, we'll, we, are we ever going to learn anything? Are we ever going to change? And then the whole I don't know is much more of a to me is like a great button ending. Yeah. I, I don't know if you need well, it extra because Flag doesn't appear in this book until after the superflu is already in place. Like it's not like I mean in the miniseries you see the crow land near Project Blue, which is the very first scene where where everything gets kicked off. But even that's just kind of a more of a nod than anything. Whereas with this, it's like. I love that he kind of has to wait for this horrible, you know, cataclysmic event to awaken in a way. I mean, he's already woken, but he, to make himself known. And yeah, that's a good point. Like with this, it's like, oh, okay, is he going to kick, uh, I don't know, is he going to like start everything bad in this society? I I think that maybe that would have resonated with me more if he'd been able to tie them together, right? Like if what, what we leave... Um, the Stu and Franny chapter with is the notion that we'll never learn anything. And then what we see instead of um, people who can't understand him, people who are pre language, um, if instead it was another situation of chaos where some sort of epic tragedy has caused the downfall of society and in walks a force of evil to bring out the worst in people, then that would hit me differently. Instead, it just felt like, Ooh, just look what's going to happen. And yeah, I, I think that maybe if we had ended on humans are the worst enemies of humans, but there's also this force that can, make things that much worse mm-hmm. that would have hit me harder i guess yeah i guess i've just always seen it as you know cause a wheel mm-hmm. hey it is right oh uh, oh we'll save that for king's dominion <laughs> oh. one, uh yeah and, and another thing too the dreams 
people, you know, people see Mother Abigail, people see the Dark Man, but does Mother Abigail, is she visiting them in these dreams? Does she remember these people? She doesn't remember the dreams that they have of her no. and talking to them. I don't think we them. get into the logistics so, of the dreams. Right. So, like, it's not like even he, like you said, like, when he shows up, he has to wait for the plague to pretty much take its toll before he starts really making his moves and, you know, <laughs> you know, gathering his army. But even when the dreams start to really take place, it's 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 after the shit's gone hit yeah. the fan. But you know, we get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe I read this wrong, but that Nadine, as an example, was always gonna yes. get what came, what happened to her, right? Yeah. Like from the time she was a small child, she was somehow headed towards this yeah. dark figure. And, and that's something um you guys talked a lot about this last episode about so the, the, the idea of predestination has always bugged me a little bit, especially with Nadine's character, like the fact that she was doomed um, even despite being somewhat of a good person. Um, and But even with that, and this the, the way she sees Flag through the Ouija board or, or whatever else when she was younger is similar to how, how people see him in the dreams early on. Because early on, he's almost more impressionistic it's like this just this idea of a shape or something following you yeah, they can't really see his face. exactly yeah. yeah and then later on it becomes like oh it's the walking dude and it's vegas so i think you're right on the money in that it's it the thing almost has to happen in full effect for him to gain his power um which maybe points to how maybe that's why he's weak compared to the actual devil or something like that did you mentioned i know you mentioned before um how he was the one who got pushed into the pen of pigs which is from the oh the yeah Legion, yeah so does that because the, and there's another thing where he he says something like, "I'm John the Conqueror." There's a couple of times where he refers to you know himself from a specific event from the Bible or from history. It, do, does all that line up? Like, I guess is that whoever the character is that gets pushed into the the pen well, it's of not pigs. really a character. It's uh-huh. just uh, uh, like the the name Legion is. We are um, many. The, it's yeah. just it just means that like we. As demons, we are one. So like, he's, he's a demon, then. He, essentially, what this book posits through, if you want to trust Tom Cullen, <laughs> uh, from what Tom says uh, in when he's hypnotized, is that he essentially confirms that Randall Flagg is not Satan, but a demon, because, um, yeah, because basically, uh, uh, you know, Jesus cast out a demon from within a man into a herd of pigs, and they ran off a cliff. And that well, doesn't mean that the demons died, it just means that the demons can take different shapes and, you know... Well, because he's also, a, but he is a sorcerer, for, as you know, from the Dark Tower, who had, like, an actual childhood. So I always wonder, like, okay, is it implying that he's this um, time-traveling, dimension-traveling magician who takes up league with, with the devil? Or is it, like, he's an actual demon? Or well, I don't know. And that, that was my thing with the whole parallel universe, you mm-hmm. know, thinnies and all of whatnot. I, I, I think maybe... Maybe there's a dark man in, in every universe that's born, has a life, and then when he comes to the realization of his evilness, he's like, you know, I have gone by many other names. Like, maybe he didn't particularly personally live out that life in that other parallel universe, but he knows that he went by Randall Flagg in that, you know. Like a shared you know, maybe, mind. Yeah, it's yeah. like a shared yeah, I think it's like, like, n- network or something. I'm you know? Legion, we are, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Legion, we are many. Like, like, I think what Randall Flagg is probably constitutes multiple beings. Uh, I think uh, I think Mac is our, our resident beamologist. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, um, another note I just remembered in the in the epilogue, uh, Flag says, "I've come to teach you how to be civilized." Is what he says, and I think in terms of the themes we are discussing, the idea of um, 
civilization as a destructive force. You know, the difference between community and society. I think that, in a way, is King sort of hitting home that theme, that idea of, like, I've come to teach you how to be civilized, and thus, you know, like, that is in itself a form of evil. Even though he's probably going to show them structure and progress and whatever else. Yeah, I think. yeah. Uh, if Randall Flagg is real, and I think that we're all in agreement that he is, he is a, a real person, mm-hmm. I mean, a real in demon in, our, in life. He's just around. Uh, and I, then I just want to say, there's a reason that I have always mistrusted Roberta Flack and Rafe Fiennes. Oh, the little RF, because it is mm-hmm. always always like Robert Fry, Rafe Robert Fines. Frost. Robert Frost. Fuck well, that guy. Ra- 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 Faraday. Rafe, Ra- Ralph Faraday? Or wait, Daniel Faraday from Lost? Or <laughs> well, they, they, they said that they took that name from... Oh, because they're a big right, Stephen King fans. That's right, that's right. Um, wait, they yeah. should have just made Lost, like, whoever, the, they should have just made whatever the fuck his name is the so, wait no Jacob? Not, no wait Jacob who's Tobin Bell's not on Lost right Tobin Bell oh, no, no. Damn. isn't Jacob in the Saw movies though the guy who plays who plays um no no Ben Linus who who oh he's in the Saw he's movie he's in the first Saw movie ah, whatever him it, what, they just revealed like oh, he's Randall Flagg like that's the twist in Lost or something that would have been absurd but he's kind of not bad. fuck well I the man like in Lost. black is Bosch Who's Bosch? Which one? Oh yeah, the man in black is Bosch. <laughs> oh, Titus Welliver. Titus Welliver. Man, I watched I most Titus of Wolver. Lost and I can't remember it, that show. It's, uh, I stand by it. Hey, Dan, hand me the book real quick. That's Randall Stan, it was the twi- stand, standing no, by a lot. It was the Twin Peaks of our time. Can you yeah. pass the Anthem whatever fuck edition it is? Yeah, the Anchor, anchor <laughs> yeah, Books. The anchor, anchor Books. The one with uh, World War II looking cover. Um, what, else do we, what else do we think about Randall Flagg? Do we have any other thoughts? There's so uh, much. I mean, know, obviously, we're going to discuss him in future episodes. Honestly, like, and I don't know him personally, but he sounds like a jerk. That's a little nod to Norm. No, Norm McDonald. So yeah, what other? What, what about the rest of you? What other characters? Do I want, I'm sure Allison loves uh, Julie Rat- Lowry's MVP. For, uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. Why don't you talk oh, about really? Dana? I'm excited to hear your your take. The anti Julie Lowry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want a spy show that's just Dana. Yeah. I just it, I it felt like that chapter was so exhilarating mm-hmm. and terrifying and kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um. And she, especially knowing Dana's backstory, it felt so righteous. And it was, I just, I think that it's an incredible piece of writing. And Mm -hmm. like, and all of a sudden you're in another genre and it totally works. But um, all of, it's all great. Her seeing Tom and trying to puzzle out like, why on earth would they do that? They would never do that. I can't be seeing this correctly. And then slowly coming to understand why that might have happened and what it means. Um, but especially her confrontation with Flag and watching her knowing she's being manipulated and mm-hmm. figuring out what he's doing and why and noticing all of the things that give it away, the tiniest tells that give it away. Um, it, I just thought it, that that was incredible. And she's, it's her character through that whole sequence is crystal clear. I feel like I understand everything that's going on with her. Um, it feels... Like, if we didn't know what happened to her in the zoo, this, it wouldn't hit nearly as hard. But if, but even if we didn't, it would still be an incredibly entertaining piece of writing that's um, thrilling and heartbreaking at the end. It, it might be my favorite section of book three. And I think so. I think, like, in that sense, too, it's one of the times when I think we see Flag at his most uh, cunning. Like, we start to see, like, 
the, the powers that he really does have, like, when he's... I mean, he fails, but at the same time, that sense of, like, manipulating someone and sending little pinpricks into their mind and, like, uh, trying to get inside someone's mind and the, the you know, the hip, hypnotizing aspect of his gaze and just, like, the sense of, uh, of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, like, uh, the intimidation that he can exude. Well, because there's a point... I love that exchange they have because for the first half of their conversation, she is really content. She's like, oh, I get to go home. Cool. And then she has a, a second where she realizes what he's doing. Well, and throughout it, there that. are these moments where she where she keeps thinking, this can't be. This yeah. isn't right. Something about this isn't right, even as she starts to feel more and more comfortable and optimistic. Mm-hmm. And then it's that moment when he tells Larry to get, not Larry, Lloyd. See, fuck you, Stephen King. <laughs> when uh, he tells Lloyd to get her bike ready, and then just a couple of minutes later messages him again and says never mind to wait because they have something else to discuss and he's there she's like he everyone here is terrified of you he wouldn't he wouldn't still be there yeah i know exactly what you're doing when she calls it a a one-act play yeah uh i just i think that it is just great yeah Um, he's so I can't awesome. wait to cast this when we do that. I cannot <laughs> oh, wait. God, yeah. I have so many ideas about Dana. <laughs> Would you say that Dana's too. your favorite um, female character in the book? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I think Franny not... is incredibly empathetic and we spend so much more time mm-hmm. with her. Um, I think that Nadine is really compelling mm-hmm. for all of the um, pitfalls in the writing. Many think of which he, he actually dodges, but some of which feel a, a bit sad. Um I, I like Lucy. Um, there are other characters that I find. No, I hate Julie Lowry. Fuck Julie Lowry. But um, but I, I think that my favorite piece of writing for a female character in the book is is this section of Dana's. Yeah. And that like kills me because I love Dana. And and the fact that we, we get her and only get her at the end, but it's probably one of my favorite parts of the book. Uh, is It's like it's like King realized, oh, I've got this great character. And it's like, man, we should have we introduced <laughs> yeah. her in like book one, you know? But uh, but no, she she's great, and and I I just love, you know, in the the miniseries I love that scene as well. Um, it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the yeah. miniseries, and I, I like the act. Kelly it, Overby is I think pretty good as Dana. She but she she doesn't get nearly as much to do, which is the right. problem. But I do like her. As but Dana. I I think that they they do a good job with that scene. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they kind of change a little bit of it, but it it, it, it all works. It's close. To so getting the there in the book, I was really excited to read that, and and it's obviously a little bit meatier in the book, so that was really nice too, um, as short as it is. Uh, but yeah, just man, seeing her her conversation with Flag is just great because, like you said. She knows like what's going on. I mean, she. I think there's probably a little part of her that was dying to go home that wants to believe that maybe you know. But like she, she knows that that's it. And the fact that she does what she does in order to, because she knows that if she stays alive and if she, you know, she's gonna give Tom up. And the fact that she that goes out the way she does is is like and, uh, kills me. And I love too that the so she bursts through the glass and pales herself in the glass and she's still alive. And there's a sentence about how she, all she has to do is uh, tilt her head to the right just a little bit to sever her jugular vein, oh. and it, which is so gross. But I love that it's just this slight thing that frustrates Flag. Like, oh, all she had to do was this, and then he j- it just sets him off, like you guys said about yeah, the, it goes in the tantrum. tantrum before. <laughs> yeah, the tantrum. Which I that in the miniseries isn't done well, but yeah, in the, uh, in the miniseries. Well, the well, yeah, we we'll get to that uh, later. Yeah. Does. Remind me, does he turn her her arm knife into a banana in the book? Yes. 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 So, 
really quick when I was overripe banana. An overripe banana. When I was young, so yeah, the the implication is that she has this um, spring blade on her wrist that she it's retractable and she's gonna you know stab stab flag and yeah. Well, and I thought she was gonna stab herself at first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the in the miniseries, and they play it just like they do in the book. She she goes like eat this or something, and and then it's a banana that she's holding. Now, when I was younger, I thought she, I thought she um, went to like cut Flag's dick off, and he turned it into a banana, and then she severed a banana, and she's like, "Oh, it's a- Dan, where you're in mind, your mind as a child, where were you? What were you thinking?" And then, and then when I read the book finally, I'm like, "Oh, the blade turns into a banana." But I thought it was like she somehow got his dick off. And it's like, "Oh, it's just a banana." <laughs> but, um, but no, that, that is not. Awesome. Uh, to wrap up Dana on that note, uh, yeah. no, she she's great. She's I mean, great. I really, yeah, I wish I. I wish we could have like a, a Dana book. Yeah, hey, who knows? Uh, another people? parallel universe, uh, Dana. Come on, King. I would love that. I I just love um, to underline it, just in case this is something that anyone listening hasn't picked up on. The idea that the person who's subjected to the most brutal sexual assault of any character in the book um, ends up using sex as a weapon mm-hmm. um, to gather information is just astounding to me and it didn't feel cheap it didn't feel like it was something he hadn't considered it felt to me like this is what sex was to her now and that's and she was gonna use it well because um, there's and i just thought that was remarkable because her having sex with lloyd is obviously i mean it's a big thing right like you're hat you're letting the villain enter you and it's funny because obviously the zoo is not in the miniseries i i may i could be wrong i think the zoo may not even be in the original book maybe i'm wrong about that i don't know but you're absolutely right because when as a kid i was like oh man that's kind of that's like a pretty far step to take for her to help the free zone but because like you said sex has been made i don't want to say it's been meaningless for her at all because she oh i think meaningful but not something Mm -hmm. to this it seemed like just another thing that she could do to accomplish her goal it's not and there wasn't it wasn't traumatic it was disgusting mm-hmm. um and that i i just loved. I've, I've got some pound cake uh later on that and it, and it almost comes from Dana's inner monologue because it's, it's almost funny how she's looking at lloyd and the way the way she's like faking it too, she's like oh yeah, yeah lloyd like and, it's, and you just see him like oh yeah <laughs> it's I know, ridiculous yeah and and i gotta give it up to the free zone committee because their scouts are pretty great they're great yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. i mean like judge ferris I, hey, you know what? I think I think if the judge had had gained more ground, I think that he would have been but a formidable foe. Even with the judge, the thing that they were correct with all their spies because although this wasn't their intent, their intent was to retrieve information, which doesn't end up happening with any of their spies. But I think the thing then maybe this goes back to God or goodness's plan a little bit. All the spies threw a wrench in Flag's yep, plan because Judge Ferris. He gets his face blown off, which is not what what Flag predicted, and that sends him into a fury and and. And is kind of the first chink in the armor for Flag. Dana obviously doesn't give up any information, um, and she she bests him. I mean, she dies, but she gets the best of Flag. And then Tom, like he never figures out. So I think I think they did a great job choosing their spies because although they didn't get information to help them destroy Flag, they set off the unpredictability that I think ends up, or they they um, they set off Flag's lack of intuition, which ends up. Um, destroying him you know and they're distracting flag too i mean the flag has to go out and you know penalize this guy for what happens to the judge and while he's not there things are like falling apart at vegas and the same thing with when he goes off to to meet nadine 
like things are falling apart back at Vegas and you know they're like where's Flag you know and like had he been there or like when he, he comes back and like Julie I know we hate Julie <laughs> but even when Julie's like oh hey I've got this information on Tom the other spy and like he's just like can't be bothered because he's just came back with his bride and like yeah. you know and then finds out after the fact and loses his shit right well because she tells Lloyd okay Julie yeah, Lowry yeah. just real quick because she doesn't do her whole oh, here we go it just it's it, at least she's shitty in the right way yeah in the in book three, right? Like she's exactly the right kind of asshole, and she's so awful that even Lloyd is like, nah, she's the worst. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't even say like he like notices her physically at first, but then after he's just like, ah, oh, this. Girl there's sucks. a section where and uh, Lloyd, you know, also the the worst, but there's yeah. a moment where he wishes that the woman who does the who's the phone operator, oh, yeah, who's all like that. nice, oh, that and, flirts with them, yeah, and has them. the hots for him, yeah. where he wishes that her personality could be on Julie Lowry's body, yeah. <laughs> where it's like, well, I mean, that's terrible of you, but Julie Lowry is so awful yeah. that even Lloyd is like, this no girl thanks, sucks, um, that's true, but. But when she come when she comes forward to say like, "Hey, I spotted this guy who I fucked with once," and then can't even tell the story in a way to get the information across so that it matters oh, to life. Like her communication of this vital fact is so self-centered and indulgent and petty that it takes Lloyd like I don't know how long it is days yeah. a long time to be like. Oh, okay. I get what you're saying. So that's the spy. Well, because if yeah, first Lloyd is just kind of like, what the fuck do I care Please about? Get this to the thing point. I don't understand why are you such an asshole. And then, like hours later, days later, however long it is, the penny drops and he goes, oh, okay. And then because Tom Cullen is who he is, um, and because Flag is so arrogant, even when this information is presented to him in in such a fashion that he could, in theory, track Tom Cullen down. He's like, why? I don't. You talk about things when I tell you to talk about them. And then when he finds out what it is, he says, "Why didn't you tell me this?" Yeah. Like, what an asshole. Um, we, we we there's a character. We're on Vegas. We need to talk about. <laughs> oh boy. We've talked about him a lot already, but we need. He makes his proper appearance, proper first appearance here, and that is Ratty Elkins, the Rat Man. Isn't it Ratty Elkins? Isn't it? Don't they? Don't they? I think they call him Ratty Elkins or something I don't, beforehand. No, I think I think you're probably right. I just uh, oh, forgot. Boy, that. the the Rat Man. The Rat Man. We talk, you know, we we talk about how race is examined a lot. Ratty Irwin. Ratty Irwin's. Now, <laughs> oh boy. Even if we we've talked before about oh well you know the the big problem with race and diversity in the stand and a lot of early Stephen King books is that it's not that necessarily Mother Abigail is the way she is it's that she's the only black character the only prominent black character yeah. and they make they they fall into some of those magical Negro stereotypes um, even if <laughs> I don't know, even if the stand had been filled with like all sorts of of people of different races and ethnicities, I think the Rat Man would still stick out like a sore thumb because he's he's not in any of the Vegas stuff up until then. Up until the very end. And all his only distinguishing traits is that he's dressing like an Ethiopian pirate. And he carries a sword. And like... he carries a sword, has gold teeth, and he speaks totally like, like oh, I'm the Rat Man, bold, black, and beautiful. And I have a quote Holy here. shit. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Well, w- let's just say that Dan and I, and uh, probably you too, Mac, like we all kind of... I don't want to say fell in love 
with the Ratman and the miniseries. But the Ratman is a much more prominent part of the miniseries because they got it, Rick Avilas. Is that from, from Ghost from and Ghost, uh, Carlito's who Way. Who is a yeah. prominent actor, a very good actor. And I think the Stan, made, he died of, uh, of AIDS, unfortunately, um, in the 90s. I think the Stan was one of his last roles. I yeah. think he was sick during the Stan. They make him a more prominent character in the Stand, and it, it, but it's pretty awful there too. But he, he the, the the line. I mean, I mean, anyone who's seen the miniseries knows this. Larry Underwood bumps into him in an arcade in Times Square early on for no reason because they only interact at the end. And the Ratman turns around and sees him, and Larry, Larry's like, "Oh, I'm Ooh, sorry, sorry, buddy. We should, man, you guys should have asked Adam Stork about that scene. Now that I'm thinking about I it, but, know, um, I know. but um, he and, and he's like, well, I'm sorry.' And uh, <laughs> the Rick Avilas goes, "The Ratman forgive you this time." And then like the, it lingers <laughs> on him for a while. And I remember <laughs> Randall and Allison and I actually all used to work at Groupon as as editors. And um, when it, when you first got hired there, I don't remember what the context was, but like. Weird G chatting, and you said something like, "Oh, I'm sorry," and then I, it was you're apologizing for something like uh, either we had to like push a, push a lunch time back, and I was like, "The Rat Man forgive you this time," and I don't think we knew we knew that like we each loved the stand at that point, and you just start you were like cracking up, you're like, "Oh my god!" Like that line is so funny, and I used to always put that as my away message, but um, we, uh, yeah. and then I know at least maybe two of our followers on Facebook have posted the Rat Man Forgive You This Time YouTube clips uh, on our stat- on our post before, so we know it's a hit. And, it, yeah. and what's funny, too, because, like, for easy this time, the next time he sees him, like, oh, he smashes his guitar and says, Disco's dead! And, like, that's <laughs> Anyway. And that's in the book, I think, too. I th- yeah, that, yeah. Well, maybe I, not the Disco's dead, but I think the... He says, like, that white honky voodoo. He said... He said our, our honorary Losers Club member, Dan Flieger, always says, like, shut up with that honky voodoo. Because it's so... Every every line the Ratman says is, like, a stereotype in this. And I, I mean, there's not much to say about him as a character. Just as, like, why the fuck is he in there? Like, that could have been... That could have been any other character in Vegas. I don't know. Um, I've got a section here. Here. Right. Uh, let's read a little bit about that. I was gonna say Mr. Pancake, but I, I actually think this works better under character. Um, so Julie Laurie, this is the meeting of the minds here. <laughs> Julie Laurie approached the Ratman, the only fellow in Vegas she considered too creepy to sleep with, except maybe in a pinch. His black skin glimmered in the blue-white glare of the welding arcs. He was tricked out like an Ethiopian pirate. Wide silk trousers, a red sash, and a necklace of silver dollars around his scrawny neck. What is it, Ratty? she asked. The Rat Man don't know, dear, but the Rat Man got hisself an idea. Yes, indeedy, he does. It looks like black work tomorrow. Very black. Like to slip away for a quick one with Ratty, my dear? (laughs) And then Julie said, maybe, but only if you know what this is all about. Tomorrow, all of Vegas gonna know, Ratty said. You bet your sweet and delectable little sugar buns on that. Come along with the rat man, dear, and he show you the 9,000 names of God. You know, I didn't get to say, but if there was gonna be a series, that would be my episode. Would be Julian Ratty. Day out, day, a night out, a night out in Vegas. That's a great bottle episode. Oh my God. Well, because it's so f- this goes back to that thing we, we always say about King just taking it like those five steps too far. Because all right, just imagine that conversation happening. He's talking so long. You're like, uh huh, uh huh, uh-huh, 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 okay, cool, uh-huh, cool. Uh-huh. Holy hell, man! I, and there's not much to say about the rap. I just, I he, what a weird character. Like, why not make all the stuff that happens to him ha- Ace High or yeah. um, or um, uh, Whitney or any any of them? Like, could have could have done it's it. Like, yeah. It's not even that. It's like Mother Abigail, like you just said, Dan. It's not necessarily that, like, 
this there's no place for a character like this. It's just that there's no other people of color really that we get to see who aren't uh you know either magical or deranged in some way <laughs> like it's just or you know it's just a really bizarre character that um honestly it's like more it's like the way it's presented in the movie is more responsible <laughs> no it is in the movie at least he's not going on for like 20 lines or that he's just like yeah the rat man forgive you and like the the oh, this is this is low he ain't bad for a slice of white bread and like you know it's, it's all we know Revan has like five or six lines in the movie and we know them all oh by yeah well, they're great they're great yeah. i'm the rat man bold anyway. black and beautiful uh, we, we probably okay. spent a lot of time on yeah yeah i know we can move on Let's move on. Let's go um, to the other side of the track. I'd say, I'd say that. Wait, what did you say, Matt? I was just say we can go to the other side of the track and talk about God's Tom. God's Tom. Yeah. Tom, uh, Tom. I yeah, actually, God's Tom was. I actually found the, that to be. Uh, I mean, there there is also a little bit of magical, uh, you know, a ma- like magical um, uh, Phoebe kind of character going on to steal uh, Julie Lawry's word for him. Yeah. But it's uh, you know because when he gets hypnotized, suddenly he becomes this kind of voice. Um, and that's another question too. That might be in some places where people are like, "Well, this is evidence that we are dealing with, you know, a spiritual sort of God because it speaks through Tom." But then, of course, at the same time, he's probably very susceptible. But he is speaking kind of outside of his, uh, you know, he's not saying things he would say if he weren't hypnotized. Mm-hmm. But then he starts quoting the Bible. He speaks about um, how God speaks to him and everything, and uh, and I think that that's in book two. So I'm all right, right. to book three. But I think that. That section is when Tom, I think, takes on a different kind of dimension, and he becomes more than just sort of. Uh, I mean, I we we get good stuff with him when he's with Nick as well, but uh, the character really sort of blossoms once he gets recruited to go into Vegas, and I think it's actually kind of um, you know lovely the way his scenes are written in Vegas because we really see him become part of a community there, and um, and I find it just very interesting that they uh, you know they accept him in Vegas and that he. Like I, Tom is a way that he does. He he has a way that he describes everybody in Vegas. He says, um, "It was as if all these people were wearing happy folks faces, but their real faces, their underneath faces, were monster faces." He had seen a scary movie about that once. That kind of monster was called a werewolf. I thought that was like a really fascinating look at how Tom is processing. Um, from his perspective, what life is like in Vegas, and and the chap the chapters where he um when the, where the moon is full and he realizes he has to bike home, I oh, yeah. and I knew it was going to happen because I've I've read the book a lot, but I was just rooting for him so much, yeah. like where he where he goes off the road and he has the intuition to go towards um God's finger the, uh, the oh I really like thing. that too yeah. I love that and like and you you just you want him to get out so bad and he, King really captures this idea of. When you're running away from something dangerous or troubling, and then you get to the point where you're safe, because he has that point where Tom realizes that Vegas is far enough behind him now, where he feels like, okay, I think I'm fine. And it, the adrenaline in those chapters, and just the empathy he has for Tom, and, and the effect that it has on the reader, you just you want him to get out so bad, and he does. And it's it's once again, it's a it's a reward, I think, for the reader. You know? Yeah, and of all the characters that were sent over there to 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 be to come back unscathed and and get out, it's just it's kind of cra- it's crazy but it's like it's so satisfying and he, yeah he because he's the um, one you think wouldn't get back i mean if he had stated not even a day longer he would have been blown up probably i think mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't remember what the exact timeline is um and i, I just love watching i mean even rereading salem's lot with the mark petrie chapters i love when king focuses on characters and has them being resourceful and especially if they're like a kid or a mentally challenged person or someone else who you, who you think wouldn't be king just has such a way with 
following these people and following the tasks they're doing and their thought process. I, 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 know, I could read like resourceful King characters for days. I, I always, I love seeing that in a way much more than his character sitting around and talking. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're, we're not there yet necessarily, but like in the same way that we see that with Tom, we see that like, it just, I just feel like, like with, uh, 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 trash can man mm-hmm. when he's getting the nuke, and how it gets so deep into just the minutia of what it takes yeah. to get a Yeah, how is he going to get that out of there? Yeah, like yeah. that, like what you're saying though, it, it's like it reveals so much character. But with Tom too, it's like even just the ways that he takes care of Stu and like the little things that he does for him. It's uh, I feel like and like there's you, he's such a presence of purity, especially in the third book, which is filled with so much like violence and tragedy and uh, disappointment and a lot of things. But uh, when it comes back to Tom, there is. Uh, like you said, it's very satisfying for the reader because he is this vessel of purity. And then when he finds Stu, you feel like Stu's going to be okay. Yeah. You know? And then just, yeah, that, that all of the chapters where, and they, they cover this a little bit in the miniseries and I don't want to talk about it too much, but you know, in, in the book, just being able to go into that a little bit more about his journey with Stu going out and checking all the cars and coming back, you know, and, and it's, it's really interesting to see him. He does really blossom in these chapters and, it's also a, one really interesting thing to me is, is towards the very end when Tom and Stu make it back to Boulder. And I've got this written down. It's in page 1129. Uh, he says, uh, I think it's the Anchor Books uh, <laughs> edition of paperback. Uh, he says, we're in Boulder again, Tom murmured softly. We really are. C-I-T-Y-L-I-M-I-T-S. That spells Boulder. Laws, yes. <laughs> Whereas I don't think he does he ever does he always spell out other things or he know. always spells out moon he knows. and You're, maybe is yeah. it because the moon mission it's not even because he was doing moon before the moon mission even became a thing so what is he trying to say with this now like know. is he that, is he learning is I he like this, I think it's just a little I, I moment know, of, like, him, of his mind expanding a little bit after what he's yeah been and, and and I I just that really hit me and I just I really like that because I, I mean I don't know it was just. It was just kind of like okay, we're he's we were I don't know we're done with with Mo and Tom where where the the mission you know the moon mission the the, the it's over it's you know time. like it's it's we're in Boulder we're this is a new life it's a new you it, know it a would chance be, to it would be interesting to go because I noticed that too I, de- I definitely think that's the first time that happens where he does he a doesn't spell moon and then doesn't say you know well no because he never says moon but yeah he doesn't spell it right. Mo and it would be interesting to go back and see if he even does that device at all the rest of the book. I mean, he's not in the book a ton after that, but yeah, it would I be interesting. He doesn't do that ever. He always spells things M O O. So I think, so I think, I think at the, we should, cause that's like towards the very end, we should look through that last hundred pages and see if that's a point where maybe he doesn't do M O O N again. Cause yeah, I think that is him learning totally. And like, be kind and like it just plays into this idea of the next chapter starting, uh, I think with, the boulder free zone also you know like things are things are changing yeah the i'm guessing we're about to wrap up on tom because yeah. i think mm-hmm. we've covered him pretty well but i did want to just bring up a piece of writing that i found particularly effective that's sure. in the tom chapter um and it's when he's biking down the road but before flag um has found out who the third spy is 
Uh, nimbly, his feet found the pedals, and he biked on faster and faster, bending over the handlebars to cut down the wind resistance, picking up speed until he was nearly flying along. If he had come upon a wrecked car in his path, he would have pedaled into it full tilt and perhaps killed himself. But little by little, he could feel that dark, hot presence falling behind him. And the greatest wonder was that the awful red eye had glanced his way, had passed over him without seeing. Maybe because I'm bent over my handlebars so far, Tom Cullen reasoned incoherently. And then it had closed again. The dark man had gone back to sleep. How does the rabbit feel when the shadow of the hawk falls on him like a dark crucifix and then goes on without stopping or even slowing? How does the mouse feel when the cat, who has been crouched patiently outside his hole for the entire day, is picked up by its master and tossed unceremoniously out the front door? How does the deer feel when it steps quietly past the mighty hunter who is snoozing away the effects of his three lunchtime beers? Perhaps they feel nothing, or perhaps they feel what Tom Cullen felt as he rode out of that black and dangerous sphere of influence, a great and nearly electrifying sunburst of relief, a feeling of new birth, most of all a feeling of safety, scarcely earned, that such great good luck must surely be a sign from heaven. Oh, that's great. I, I it. think yeah. it's just incredible. And then a couple of chapters later, we have this brief moment where Tom is sleeping and a rattlesnake comes up and curls up and sleeps beside him and then slithers away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's just like, it's, I don't know exactly what King is saying. I don't know how I feel about a God or someone being blessed or protected, yeah. but it's, um, there's something about it that I found really transfixing. Well, yeah. And that's, and, and that, that ties to what we were saying earlier about, um, the religion element working a lot better for me in the third book because mm-hmm. um, it, it's tying more to nature and instinct and and the world as a whole as opposed to just like God is real, God is good, and all mm-hmm. that you know. So yeah, yeah, we love we love you, Tom. Um, I I was gonna I wanted to talk about Lloyd during the characters, but I feel like we touched on him so much I, already. Yeah, I just love to read one um, section from Lloyd that I found really moving. I think that Lloyd really has that, like, a reckoning when, um, you know, he encounters Glenn in the jail cell, and Glenn is basically laughing at Randall Flagg, and Randall Flagg is so, can't believe that somebody's laughing at him, and he's so deeply affected by it, and that kind of touches on what we were saying earlier about how fallible and how, and how weak he is in some certain ways, like, he's so driven by pride that this old man laughing at him drives him crazy, and I think that that is probably a moment where Lloyd really starts to, you know, like, he's already shifting, but I think that he, like, that thank God moment that doesn't happen that I think secretly does, um, <laughs> you know, it, I think maybe it's kind of triggered here, but just, uh, Glenn's laughing and Lloyd screams, shut up, you mouthy old bastard. He fired again and Glenn Bateman's face disappeared. He fired again and the body jumped lifelessly. Lloyd shot him yet again. He was crying. The tears rolled down his angry, sunburned cheeks. He was remembering the rabbit he had forgotten and left to eat its own paws. He was remembering Poke and the people in the white Connie and gorgeous George. He was remembering the Phoenix jail and the rat and how he hadn't been able to eat the ticking out of his mattress. He was remembering Trask and how Trask's leg had started to look like a Kentucky fried chicken dinner after a while. He pulled the trigger again, but the pistol only uttered a sterile click. That's just a moment that you see so much humanity and you see kind of the accumulation of his uh, his own personal suffering start to really sort of manifest and come out on this person who is laughing at the only thing that ever gave him meaning in his life. Yeah. You know? One, um, and in a weird way, it, it leads Lloyd to greater empathy. Like, it's the first yeah. time he kind of feels bad for all these things he's done, which yeah. goes back to what you were saying about Flag in an, in an odd sort of way did make him a better person, yeah. um, oddly enough. Yeah. Um, 
Well, he gives anybody a real purpose, you yeah. know, and they start to discover who they really are. Trash Can Man, too. I mean, even though the Trash Can Man is a uh, religious maniac more mm-hmm. than anything, I mean, yeah. he, he still ends up, like we said before, kind of serving the greater good. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think I may have said this before. I think he, you know, uh, King always brings up how this was his American take on the Lord of the Rings, which, I mean, I, I, I do get that to an extent. Not that you could, like, sync up characters directly. I mean, Flag is obviously Sauron, and mm-hmm. Stu is Frodo, whatever. But I do think the Trash Can Man is very similar to Gollum. And he, and just like Gollum, yeah. ends up destroying the ring inadvertently through through this, like, mania. Um, uh, Trash Can Man kind of does the same thing with Vegas. I mean, he's so consumed by this that it ends up being his and, and mm-hmm. all of Vegas's undoing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What uh? What other characters? Any anyone else? Uh, we, so I think we. I think are we saving maybe the biggest for last? Who's the biggest? Stuart oh, oh, does Stuart? Uh, yeah. yeah, Stu. But before we move to Stu, yeah, Trash Can Man. That whole thing with him inadvertently maybe, kind of serving God in a way in yeah. terms of bringing the bomb um, or the my life for you. And what does that really mean? You know, is that really to flag or? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's he's just such a strange, complicated character. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, because you never know. With at a certain point, he's become so loopy. And and my life for you. I mean, I don't know what. What if he was talking to God the whole time, and he and he mistook. uh, I don't know. He mistook. I don't think he is. But (laughs) I would love. I started thinking that. I was like, well, maybe, maybe he he's like the instrument. (laughs) I'm like, he's also batshit crazy. Just a nightmare. You know, he's trying to compensate because he. You know, his own insecurities and mania sort of drove him to, uh, you know, blow up Indian Springs and kill Carl Huff right. and all those guys. And Who are the guys that would have bombed the free zone. Yeah, exactly. And But it's, you know, and he knew that that was wrong and he knew that Flag was mad at him. And he went out to go get the nuke as a present for Randall Flagg. And I think that what's... when You you called him a religious maniac, and I think that's true. I think he represents a, a zealot, the kind of person who, you know, in trying to please their angry God, their angry, vengeful God, they do things, uh, you know, they go to such extreme lengths that they serve to undo, uh, you know... But, I mean, here it serves the greater good, but I think that... You know, it is a sign of, of religious mania leading to sort of cataclysm. There's a section, and I didn't talk about this because it really, I didn't want to give anything away. Book two, Glenn and Stu are talking, and Stu, no, not Stu, Glenn, blatantly kind of lays out the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Talking about like, well, if it was me, you know, I would just try to figure out how to like, you know, get a warhead and, you know, drive it into the, the other person's camp and blow everything up. Like... I just always thought that was weird that he just oh, yeah. blatantly gave the go away like that early on, and obviously you don't know that's going to happen. But I was like, really? Why are you? <laughs> why are you writing this right yeah. now? He's like, uh, well, yeah, and, it, and it's very. Um, I mean, Glenn, de- Glenn definitely, I think, is the the prophet, I guess, for for most of what happens. Um, which, which, like I said, when I first met him, I wanted, to, I, I was like Lloyd, like shut the hell up, you mouthy old bastard, like you're you know, just being so condescending. But he is right. I mean, he's he's right about the techies being in Vegas. He's right about society falling apart. He's right about Trash Command getting that war. You know, when they were filming the miniseries, you know, he was like, well, I want to be a character that doesn't uh, that doesn't die. Uh, like, can I still be Glenn? You know, like, they're like, no, you can't be Glenn. <laughs> but you know, I mean, Glenn gets got, so uh, they had Glenn to give they had to give him Teddy. Um. So, uh, so what do we think about Stu? I, I think um, 
who said in the very first episode someone was like, oh, Stu's, Stu's cool, but he's not the most interesting character. I think Maybe that might have been me. Or, or it wasn't yeah. me. <laughs> um, and uh, I think in this one, it's tough with Stu. I mean, Stu's great in the third book. I mean, we really, because once again, we get to see him be in action during a time where he's taken out of the action of what go- happens in Vegas. I mean, but Stu is, he's good through and through. He doesn't deal with the personal struggles that Larry does. Um, he doesn't necessarily have the mental complexity that Glenn does. He definitely doesn't have the demons that Harold does. I mean, it, compared to everyone on the Free Zone Committee, um, with the exception of maybe even Nick Andros, but Nick Andros has such an interesting life that you want to read about him, and he has the, the deaf mute thing going on. Stu doesn't have a ton that's like inherently interesting about him. I don't think that makes him a bad character, but he, I don't really start to love Stu chapters necessarily until the third book. Well, that's not true. I like I like him in the the Center for Disease Control chapters are great from a horror standpoint. But as far as wanting to hear more about Stu and what's going on in Stu's head and his personality, book three is where it kind of starts to take off for me. Yeah, I would say, and it's interesting to bring it back to Allison's point about the parallel thing. It's like, okay, now Stu's got a broken leg and he has a gun. Or not a gun, but he has like the pills. The, the pills. The pills yeah. Like, what are the choices he's going to make? And to see him do the complete opposite of Harold. Not Harold's probably a little worse off in terms of his injuries. <laughs> yeah. But to see him, like what he does and how he tries to survive. And, you know, he, he I mean, he has the good fortune of Kojak, you know, just like bringing him food and stuff, which is kind of <laughs> crazy. But, hey, you know, it's Kojak. Um, to see all that happen and then to see... Tom and then because you know I don't you know if it wasn't for Stu like I don't know if Tom would have made it back through the winter you know what I mean like so it's 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 like to see them meet and then they you know work with each other to get back and those chapters like and to see Stu um or like you said the the Christmas thing where Stu's like you know maybe we're just gonna wait here for a little longer because we you know kind of deserve like just like some rest you know like just you know but then ultimately they want to get back on the road I don't know. I, I really, I really dug those the last few chapters with Stu, um, personally. Well, because and you get to see him, um, you get to see him hobbled, which doesn't happen at all throughout the book. Even when he's in the Center for Disease Control, he's always being crafty. He's the one character who doesn't have to deal with the. Well, I, I know I've said their names already, but you know he doesn't have the mental incapacity of Tom. He doesn't have the. He doesn't have Nick's handicap. He does, even with Larry. Larry gets so disoriented by the Lincoln Tunnel incident and Rita's death. Well, Larry's just so emotional. Exactly, yeah. and that and that puts him in this this fog. Stu never has that. Like Stu's able to keep his wits about him the entire time, and maybe maybe the reason he's interesting, more interesting. I I, I don't want to say Stu. I mean, I don't like. I never hated Stu before that, but the reason all of a sudden that he becomes really compelling as a character is because he he has a, cha- a big challenge he has to face that yeah. that is a challenge within him it's it's not it's not elder whoever coming in to try and kill him it's a broken leg being stuck in one place getting pneumonia all that stuff because and I think he's that, the last person that you you think when they say one will fall on the way he's the last one you think totally is gonna be. Think and that's, out something. that's one of the things that i found most interesting yeah. is that i feel like the first two chapters from the very time that we meet stew and he's the one to like calmly lean over and flip the switches on the gas tanks and Mm -hmm. understand what's going on he's smart enough to finish what's going on to figure out what's going on in the the center for disease control um he is put into this position of power not because he wants it but because someone has to do it and he is suited to it and he rises to the occasion it's like classic hero's journey shit Mm -hmm. and then he breaks his leg (laughs) and it's so it was 
really surprising because everything in the book suggests that this is like, that Stu is our everyman, we're going to follow him, he'll make a great sacrifice or somehow escape, and this is like the Stu Redmond narrative. And then it's not. No. Um, and instead, he's, it like he, it temporarily becomes a Jack London novel. Yeah. Um, well, no, it's funny. And, and I, read, I really love it. I read The Call of the Wild right after The Stand. Um, <laughs> and, and, and a lot of those survival chapters reminded me of that. And also... He breaks his leg in the lamest way possible, which I love because it's this ravine, it's this gulch or whatever it is that um, a Even dog, Glenn, can Glenn can get up it. <laughs> Ralph, who's a lot older, can climb it. The fucking dog can get up it, and like and Stu, they would say he just trips like whoa. And, yeah, I love that about it. Uh, yeah, and uh, I was gonna say, Allison, having not read the book, what, like that was pretty surprising, right? Like, oh, like yeah. did you did you have any? Like, who did you think was gonna? Oh, I, get, I mean, I just assumed get the broken leg. <laughs> like either he would die or he wouldn't. But because of all the setup with Mother Abigail saying like Stu will lead, and if Stu falls, Larry will lead, and mm-hmm. if Larry falls, Glenn will lead, and whatever. Um, I assumed that maybe something might happen to him, but I figured it would be at a big climactic, or like moment. in Vegas or something like that. Right? Because if you think about, it, he ha- he kind of has nothing to do with that final stand. Yeah, he he's really very doesn't. removed, and so instead, like if we're picking what every the the stand ding <laughs> that every character makes his is just choosing to live mm-hmm. essentially um choosing to survive and maybe that's like the greatest purpose that Harold serves in his de- I thought a lot about good deaths versus bad deaths when I was reading <laughs> book 3 which I think is intentional and um if Harold's death becomes a good death it's not because of the note he wrote it's because perhaps seeing that and thinking that's a waste it's a waste of Susan and it's a waste of Nick and maybe even it's a waste of Harold um maybe that is part of why that and his promise to Franny is maybe why he chose to survive and to fight to survive um which is a really compelling narrative and not at all the one that I thought was going to happen which is really satisfying his stand is to learn to stand again god well, I also think that, you know... <laughs> I need a his... second. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dan. All right, go ahead, man. His, uh, <laughs> Stu's fall, um, I also think, um, like, reiterates and uh, kind of is a turning point for Larry on his journey mm-hmm. to be as strong as he is at, at the end because uh, just the, just that, that sequence between the two of them where they're oh, talking man. and he's like, no, like, You've got to leave me. You've you've got to go on. You've got to do this. And he kind of, um, I I just I I want to I want to feel like I want to say that that strengthens Larry oh, and, yeah. and Ralph and and the other guys. You know, and especially yeah. And we, we gotta like we gotta talk about Ralph and Larry really quick at the end of this. But yeah, um, I, and, and Franny too. I love the idea that Mother Abigail in her final moments was like delivering this directive. And with this grandiose language, if Stu falls, then Larry will lead. And if Larry yeah. falls, and really what it meant was like, if Stu trips down an embankment, Larry will leave. <laughs> and that's so she's in her final moments right before she takes her last bowel movement of twigs and berries. <laughs> she goes, he falls. Yeah. She's like, in her head, she's like, oh man, I wish I could have gotten it out that I meant fall literally, but I don't time you get, When this happens, you guys are going to think that's hilarious. The, I, I do like, moving on to... to um, you know, yeah, Larry and Ralph, uh, and you guys talked to Adam Stork about that scene because that's actually still a really great scene in yeah. the miniseries where Stu is like, "No, you have to go, you have to go." And Larry, yeah, that's probably the, one of the best scenes. Of the I think it's probably his like best Adam best Stork's acting. best acting moment yeah, too, yeah. Um, where he's just 
I mean, because once again, he's not as young as Harold, but I mean, Larry is a lot younger. He's like a good decade younger than Stu and obviously younger than Ralph and Glenn. I mean, he he is this, in a way, still kind of a kid, you know, and I think that's the moment where he probably has to grow up. And um, I, I love where he's on death row, essentially, and wakes up and has that, finally that self-realization of like, you know what, I, the new Larry Underwood, he's a man that his mom really could have appreciated. And maybe even that dental hyg- or oral hygienist um, from uh, from. Queens of the Bronx. I love that he revisits those little moments. Yeah, I love yeah. that because he's haunted. I mean, he's haunted by these women. He's let down. He's been laying down women the entire time, and he and um these people who are like long dead and you yeah, know, like, he, like Wayne Stuckey and all these people. And, like, and and it kind of and it goes back to the the judge has a conversation with Larry right before the judge takes off of like like stop whining like have a little self righteousness like be like accept the fact that you're in this new life and you're doing good things and I really think it's like hours before he dies that he. He's once again fully formed Larry. He he's been a good guy for a little while, but he's fully formed and, and accepting, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what about Ralph? Ralph <laughs> I don't know, we haven't talked about Ralph much. We feel like we make Well fun. honestly there really isn't a lot. Yeah. I mean, he's an interesting character. He's I like that he's he represents kind of the salt of the earth, uh, kind of uh, you know, farmer kind of character and I, I find him enjoyable and I like his friendship with uh Nick and Tom with Nick yeah. and Tom I think uh you know and I think he's a he's a fundamentally good man but you know I don't really have much of a connection to him as, what, as a character and mother Abigail even says that because she's it's one of her monologue chapters in um in book two she says something like oh she really liked that Ralph you know he's a guy who maybe didn't think he was uh, I like when I paraphrase these things like I'm acting like that's the text like oh, he's a guy <laughs> no but he um but, you know he he's a guy who maybe isn't giving his intelligence uh, uh, the type of credit it deserves but in in a post apocalyptic world we need these people who are just kind of oh shucks I guess I'll just do this thing and yeah. and Mother Abigail comments on that how he, I mean it's almost like winking at the reader like oh yeah he's not someone who's gonna stand out necessarily among the crowd but he's you also need those types of people for a functioning society and i think with ralph i mean ralph may arguably maybe changes the least i think of any of the characters probably yeah, between absolutely um steadfast yeah like between when they meet him in that pickup truck and when he's in that disembowelment cage at the end but i think you kind of need that too because his faith is unwavering from the very beginning yep, yeah. like he doesn't he doesn't need to get to that point he's already there and i think maybe that's part of why you have two people on the opposite extremes you have someone who's and when I say faith, I don't mean religious faith, but faith in themselves, faith in humanity, faith in God. You have someone like Larry whose faith is lapsed or maybe wasn't there in the first place, and someone like Ralph where it was always there. And I think it, I think there's something to be said about those being the two guys who it's not the intellectual guy like Glenn, and it's not the you know the quiet smart guy like Stu. It's the it's the mm-hmm. kind of blind faith, and then the guy who had to earn his faith a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you guys have any more Ralph? Uh... Good guy, we love Ralph. Hey, I, hey, if, if you know what, if the world ended tomorrow and uh, I was one of the survivors, I'd want a Ralph. I would I'd love I, to crack a beer with Ralph. I'd want to get picked up by Ralph in the pickup yeah. truck. I would trust him. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he'll he let you wear his you hat. Any... <laughs> yeah, can you like Ralph? Can I have your hat with a long purple feather or whatever? It's in there. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about his feather hat. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think we that's a pretty good covering of, of characters. I, I think maybe my stand ten season series episode of choice would be just like ralph the story <laughs> like like ralph drinks a beer drinks his thoughts what? reminisces about the old days what, what thinks thing? about doing some work but then decides to drink another beer it's like you know i i could help out but man my dogs are barking <laughs> there's one thing that does bug me about not ralph as a character but just king it's a, it's a little bit i think a piece of writing he let slip through the cracks so ralph uh 
Ralph and the well, I know we're not in Pound Cake yet, but Ralph uh, has a couple of ladies that he's interested in in the book. Um, I think Olivia is her name, the one that oh, the the port the porch store one. It's at it's at Hemingford home, and um, oh. Mother Abigail's like like oh, uh, you know Ralph. I, Ralph's trying to like you know keeps getting stuff for this woman like impressing her like that's fine she has a fine porch door but that you know that, oh, that, that yeah, thing yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's rough trying to impress this woman but then you don't, they don't mention her again and then when he's in um the boulder free zone they mention like oh ralph lived with his woman and nick lives there too like ralph lives with his woman or something on this place but they never mention her. it's like one line and i'm like wait is ralph, is ralph with someone or not he doesn't have anyone to see him off at the so I don't know. Maybe he's like a Ralph's maybe, up to some of the stuff that Harold and Nadine were up to. <laughs> maybe Ralph's a dirt. Maybe Ralph's a dirty dog and just like it's like. Oh god! Like like I love that. That's like the hidden thing. Like they're like, oh yeah, the old farmer womanizer or something. But no, it, 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 it it's a piece of writing that bothers me. They they go they cover everyone else who's coupling up, and they mention it with Ralph that he actually lives with someone, and we know he lives with Nick. But then they don't they don't mention her again. Maybe it it's me. like in um in Civil War when the Avengers need to recover and so they go to Hawkeye's safe house. Yeah. <laughs> they're just, yeah. yeah. Secret wife. Just Secret kids. There. Well, the thought of Ralph Brentner having sex is a little scary and you know where scary things lie. <laughs> they lie in a little place called the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Uh, something that was kind of creepy and stuck with me was just when, you know, I just feel bad for the judge. <laughs> but no, <laughs> when the judge is held up at that at the, the hotel, the motel for like a night and yeah. um, and the raven shows up. Yeah. And it's just, but because, mainly because King starts alluding to, you know, Edgar Allan Poe's Raven story. And it just, it's unsettling because we've seen the flag as the Raven before, but this time the judge knows, Mm -hmm. like he even says that he says that like, he's like, maybe this is, this is him. And he's, he's, he's found me. He's seeing, seeing that I'm on the way. Yeah. Um, I mean, that whole sequence is the whole sequence with the judge and then Bobby Terry and um, the other guy, like, chasing him. And that's the little tense scene that happens, you know, when they first start talking. And then just the way it all plays out, it's all very, like, chaotic and very messy. And then, like, and it's also just really creepy to me that that Flag wanted to cut off his head and send it in a box to them. Yeah, it's (laughs) very much the the beginning of the end there. I think that's why that scene, you know, when when he does meet those guys on the road, is is so scary because like dan was saying like you know this whole rest of the book your heart's racing everything's amped up and that you know that thing just goes totally wrong i mean he dies and then you know flag shows up with the 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 feathers in his hair and you know which i think is actually really effective in the miniseries and in the book but um uh, I know some other people disagree, but uh, <laughs> Randall, well, it is no, just, uh, <laughs> it is a little. I think the feathers are a little silly, but I still love the just the description of like you know Bobby Terry learned that there's worse things than death or yeah, you know that's such a fucking that, scary like uh, ending to that chapter, and it's just there's it just it's such a and it sets such a good tone for the third book because it's so it's such a brutal sort of unforgiving. Uh, section of that book. Something that's uh, a little scary to me with the way he depicts the crow um, or raven. Is it raven or crow? I don't remember. Either way, the bird. Um, to 
to distinguish it from regular birds is that the eyes are always rimmed with red, which I think is always really mm-hmm. creepy. Um, the, you know, I, I don't think book three is as heavy on, on cemetery elements as book one, for sure. Book one is still the most terrifying for me in terms of physical detail and just the actual horrific things happening. Like, we do, I don't think we have a, a Lincoln Tunnel sequence or a uh, Stu escaping from the CDC or even a Franny burying her dad sequence in this, but... There are these little moments, like you guys said, with Bobby Terry's death and the judge. Um, one that's uh, just like a, I don't know, kind of a creepy nod to me is where they stumble across the body of the kid. Yeah. Um, and they find he managed to take out that one last wolf that was on his throat, but also got killed. And I think what's, uh, I guess, a little chilling for me is that, you know, obviously we know the kid was horrible and I, I didn't necessarily feel bad for the kid when he died. But they they don't know who he is, and they're just like, oh, this poor guy, that had to have been torture. I wonder what state of mind he had to have been into, you know, outlast these wolves and all that. And um, and also, too, because that, so that is in the original book, the, them finding the kid, although they didn't, the kid is not in there. And also it does, we you know, we, we talked before about the kid maybe being vaguely supernatural, you know? Yeah. Like he was, um, and also they had the line when, trash can man encounters him about him never stopping to think that flag sent the kid so trash so trash can man could be even more tied to flag yeah Um, yeah and i'm not saying the kid it doesn't possibly have some supernatural elements to him especially with you know him being a kind of tribute to charles starkweather however there's something creepy about them finding his body because it does show that Oh no, he was real. You know, he was this actual thing that got killed, and um, just calling him the Wolfman and all that was uh, was creepy for me. But uh, yeah, yeah. What I mean, you, just man? well, just the whole. I mean, I'm just gonna riff on. I mean, just the stuff with the kid. Yeah, it's it's like I uh, that section. Even though I know it's not one of our favorites, it's still I still think a lot about it because um, you know when my wife read it, she sort of had this reaction that. Uh, you know, when the super flu happened, there's a line in there about how all these multiple types of evil kind of came about. Like, that uh, that evil was birthed in many forms um, with this sort of post-apocalyptic act, and, you know, and that, and she very much read the kid as being sort of a supernatural figure, which I found really fascinating. And, uh, and I mean, not in the sense that he's not real, but, like, a genuine, like, you know, they mentioned Charles Starkweather, and like, it genuinely makes me feel like it is, like, genuinely a reincarnation of that. You know, that's, like, how eerie I find that character. And then just the fact that he seemed to his last as long and take out some of those wolves. It's, like, it, it that section's very eerie for me because it feels like almost another Randall Flagg-type figure and they've stumbled upon his corpse. And there's something just very, very unsettling to me <laughs> What if they? That. What if they were, like, oh, let's search his wallet, and they're, like, Charles Starkweather. Oh my god. Yeah. But uh it's just neat. No, um I'd say uh you know the scariest stuff probably in the whole book for me is um is the stuff that goes on with Nadine and I I know, you know, in the last episode um you guys talked about the Ouija and everything. Yeah, yeah. Like that stuff was really spooky to me. But um it uh, there's a section where she talks about her her own virginity and how her own virginity is sort of turning into something um it's like it's betraying her in a weird way and it's like it's 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 roiling about inside of her and the way it's described is probably one of the most sickening sections of the whole book for me and uh i'm gonna read it for you right now but revulsion was only a scaly crust over something worse a caked and long hidden lust 
an ageless pimple finally brought to a head and about to spew forth some noisome fluid, some sweetness long since curdled. His hands slipping over her back were much hotter than her sunburn. She moved against him and suddenly the slim saddle between her legs seemed plumper, fuller, more tender, more aware. The seam of her slacks was chafing her in a delicately obscene way that made her want to rub herself, get rid of the itch, cure it once and for all. It's, it's both gross, but also like, uh, it, it's passion, but it's also like putrid. And that description is so complex and gross and weird. And in a lot of ways, I think very true for people who deal with a certain amount of sexual repression, you know, well, when you, when you have no outlet for it, it can become a very violent sort of thing. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in a, in just a bit, the, that scene in the desert, but it is. It's weird with Nadine and Flag, uh, and, they, and they really they go into this in book two, but really in book in book three, how even um, even when she sees how horrible he is mm -hmm. and and what their I guess consummation is, there's still a part of her that's kind of turned on by it, mm -hmm. even when it's happening and she's going insane and um, like they talk about her like orgasming and stuff over and over, and it's just so. Ugh, I don't know. I mean, we'll get Allison. Oh, yeah, we'll, oh, yeah. we'll get there. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I don't. I don't want to. I mean, I would say I don't want to spoil anything. But I know we're going to talk about it in just a bit. So, um, yeah. We want to go into that. Um, we will, but I want to actually highlight another Nadine section while we're yeah. still in the cemetery that I found particularly um, frightening and also really beautifully written, which is her death. Um, she's been goading him first about the four men that are coming and then about his own people deserting and the fact that they're doubting him and, and, um, it's scary and weird and great. Uh, it snapped. Whatever there was inside him, it snapped. You lie. He screamed at her. His hand slammed down on her shoulders, snapping both collarbones like pencils. Oh, he lifted her body over his head into the faded blue desert sky, and as he pivoted on his heels, he threw her up and out as he had thrown the glass. He saw the great smile of relief and triumph on her face, the sudden sanity in her eyes, and understood. She had baited him into doing it, understanding somehow that only he could set her free, and she was carrying his child. He leaned over the low parapet, almost overbalancing, trying to call back the irrevocable. Her nightgown fluttered. His hand closed on the gauzy material and he felt it rip, leaving him only a scrap of cloth so diaphanous that he could see his fingers through it, the stuff of dreams on waking. Then she was gone, plummeting straight down with her toes pointed toward the earth, her gown billowing up her neck and over her face in drips, drifts. She didn't scream. She went down as silently as a defective skyrocket. Oh, yeah. um, and then that's followed by another instance um, of Flag somehow not being able to work his ma magic. It, it's maybe the second indication that when people defy him, mm -hmm. um, he loses his power. Yeah. Anyway, I just the fact that Nadine gets such a fucked up happy ending, but a happy ending, <laughs> I find really satisfying. Well, I remember there's a moment before she dies when she's in his suite and I believe Lloyd meets her and he like forces her to shake Lloyd's hand and then she immediately touches her crotch and starts like masturbating but like really absently. Yeah. It's like that's so uh, unsettling. Yeah. Like that shit's so gross. But let's get into um Oof. into the old Nadine Randall Flag sex scene, shall we? Um, do we wanna do we wanna read it? Uh, uh, I, I wanna call out a couple phrases yeah and i guess this is sort of um 
like equal parts cemetery and pound cake. Yeah, this yeah. is gonna be a, like a transitional. Yeah. Uh, so moment. just pretend that we're kind of we've got one foot in the cemetery and one foot in a big slice of pound cake. It's a death cake. Um, because this is maybe the most frightening thing in the book. I think yeah. so. I think so. But um, it's also obscene and a little bit over the top in the yeah. way that a lot of our um, pound cake sections are. Um, to Dan's earlier point, I do want to say that I think it's such a silly thing to have to clarify, um, but anytime a woman indicates in any way or is unable to indicate in any way that she doesn't want to have sex with you, that makes it a rape. So the fact that Nadine went willingly to flag does not make this scene not a rape scene, um, which I think is important to note. Um, nor does the fact that she orgasms during the sex make it not a rape scene oh, no, because yeah. there's this huge stigma um, around uh, rape survivors where they feel this incredible shame and guilt if um, if they take any physical pleasure from a rape, like somehow they enjoyed it, which is it's a physiological response. It has absolutely nothing to do with being violated and mm -hmm. it's complicated anyway. So that is particularly upsetting. Um, but let's, let's look at a couple little moments here. <clears throat> ah, she saw what he had for her and began to scream. Uh, and I want to, I want to, I want to tip my hat to King scary. here for not actually describing Randall Flagg's junk. Thanks, man. Um, the dark man's grin sprang forth at the sound, huge and glittering and obscene in the night, and the moon stared down blankly at them both, bloated and cheesy. And what I love about that <laughs> is that it's the moon that's bloated and cheesy. <laughs> and yet, um, let's see, what else have we got here? What's the thing about? destroyer like oh here that's guy. this yeah. and when the dead coldness of him slipped oh slipped into her uh, <laughs> slipped into her the shriek ripped up and out of her bolted free and she struggled and the struggle was useless he battered into her invader destroyer and the cold blood gushed down her thighs and then he was in her all the way up to her womb and the moon was in her eyes cold and silver fire and when he came it was like molten iron molten pig iron molten brass and she came herself came in screaming incredible pleasure came in terror in horror passing through the pig iron and brass gates into the desert land of insanity chasing through blown like a leaf by the bellowing of his laughter watching his face melt away and now it was the shaggy face of a demon lolling just above her face a demon with glaring yellow lamps for eyes windows into a hell she never even considered and still there was that awful good humor in them eyes that had watched down the crooked alleys of a thousand tenebrous night towns those eyes were glaring and glinting and finally stupid and i just want to point out that that sentence, because that was a sentence, began with, and when the dead coldness of him slipped into her. So that is one sentence, mostly commas, one semicolon. Um, one sentence. The phrase, uh, molten pig iron, is I so know. gross. It's so, well, especially with all the other references to pigs in yeah, relation yeah. to Randall Flagg. I looked it up, and pig iron is a real thing. I oh, didn't yeah. I know that, but it's, uh, I was like, but I was like, what is what was the pigs and yeah. the piggies? Pig, pig iron in the in the world of theater, huh? the uh, the fly systems are usually on pig pig weights. And pig yeah, iron. it's just like molten pig iron. It's well, like such a disgusting phrase. I think too. The re part of why that I mean that 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 whole scene is disturbing for a lot of reasons, but um, you obviously see Ch Flag's true persona come out. I mean, we know he's evil the whole time, but I think that's the probably the time where you see the most. Um, don't know if this is the word demonological elements like like 
you see you see the more animalistic part of him being an yeah. actual demon takeover. It's like it's... he stops wearing his Egger suit. Yeah. yeah. It, Anybody? Which... No? Yeah. No one? Egger? Oh, oh yeah. Egger, we, Egger yeah. suit? Men in, yeah. Men in Black. Men in Black. Men in Black. Yeah. It's, like, it's, like, it's like he's wearing... Um, it's. I mean, it's another Doctor Who reference. It's like he's wearing like a, a skin suit made out yeah, of another human. Yeah. And and it, and it's it's weird too because it's an instance of King being very vivid and descriptive, but also not being descriptive. I mean, yeah. Like you said, he doesn't when. <laughs> When I was younger, when he said, "Oh, he saw," she saw what he had for. I just picture that his penis is like a creature or something. Like, no, seriously, like a like, it's like a alien. no, like well, like a xenomorph or like I mean, a it's worm the or something. Mark yeah. a great piece of writing, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not sure that we should necessarily say what we all imagined yeah. when King writes. She saw what he had for her, but I guarantee everybody who reads that book immediately then pictures what Randall Flagg's penis looks exactly. like. Exactly, and it's, uh, whatever. I I, there were like. And, and he, forks yeah. and mine, if you can right? if you compare you know this to maybe the sex scenes between um harold and Nadine, well not set you know what i mean um or Stu and franny or any of them in the book where they you know the other scenes they talk about like oh he touched her breast this way or she looked you know they, he goes into very straightforward descriptions and here he's being graphic but he's not being clear and i think that's so scary like he, he uses he talks about it in terms i mean it's the, it's the classic thing of writing a sex scene like a like a death scene right um and, and you know, he's talking about him being like a destroyer of worlds and like batterer and all this stuff and it is just well and so brutal i think part of why that sentence that incredible run-on sentence mm-hmm. is so unsettling and effective is because she's descending into madness yep. and the yeah. fact that he lets the language do that too the other little chunk i wanted to call out is um, the very end of this sequence. Shaggy demon's head, a lolling tongue, deeply split into two forks. Its dead breath fell on her face. She was in the land of insanity now. The iron gates were closed. And then it says, and it's in italics, the moon, and then there's an M dash and an exclamation point. So like a thought interrupted and then silence. And the morning morning after scene they have, um, it's weird because Flag doesn't remember a lot of it either. And it it just goes back to the, he said he has that line, I know good sex always made him hungry and he's almost kind of confused as to why Nadine is acting the way she is which is really disturbing yeah. I mean going back to the thing you said about rape also just like this because Flag probably doesn't even look at it like that because he's awful but this this scene afterwards of her just being an instant catatonia in the middle of the desert um yeah it is it is just so I, I mean I, I don't have a ton to add to any of that i mean it's just i wonder so... if king yeah, had a it's... bunch of crumpled pieces of paper with descriptions of randall flag's penis on it before... <laughs> and he was finally like you know what i'm just gonna well, but, but, that, not. but that's the best like that. the best thing in horror are the things we never see and the things that are left to our own imagination yeah. so i'm so glad he didn't because you know king was like itching to write the description yeah, of that probably. thing well because there's there are other times where he doesn't show restraint and i wouldn't call this sentence restraint necessarily but no. but it's not um it's it's, so like it's, it's yeah it's not it's not like ex, it's not explicit in the way that a lot of the other stuff in the book is he's not describing this the same way that he's describing how um charles campion looks as a plague victim or how or how or even how um glenn bateman's face looks when it gets blown off even though well, it's a violent act yeah i think it's i i think it's a mark of a great writer when you realize that you've created something so upsetting that there's absolutely nothing that you can say to improve on it, yeah. right? And if he had put any description there, it would have brought the whole thing down. Absolutely. Like, I, nothing yeah. he could write could be worse than what each individual person would imagine. 
because it then is cooked out of our own fears and insecurities and um, uh, the things that uh, disgust us and horrify us. And um, it's just, it's a, t- I don't ever want to read it again as long as I live, but it's really well written. Yeah, well, it's great. You know, uh, a lot like Randall Flagg, good sex makes me hungry. <laughs> oh, oh. So it's time for Pound Cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray, ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. There's no shortage of pound cake when we're discussing um, Julie Laurie. Uh, the, they love to, to make a comparison between her pimpled idiot face, which is like, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a, you know, something from there, and her, her body. Uh, here's an example. There was something obscene about the contrast between the tight allure of her young body and the childish, pouty, and rather vacuous expression on her face. <laughs> I have, once again, Cemetery not as, not as, uh, or not Cemetery, sorry, Pound Cake not as, um, not as pounding as the, not as, as plentiful, the, as, as book two for sure, for certain, um, but there is some good stuff in here, um, and th- this isn't a great scene, because this isn't the Dana Lloyd scene that precedes her death, um, and I'm more just la- laughing at, uh, at, at Lloyd's dialogue here, uh, so okay, there, this is like post-coital, but it's a bit, in a way, precoital again. Um, all right. So this is Lloyd to Dana. You shouldn't walk around like that with no clothes on, sweet buns. You'll get me horny all over again. Um, and I always, I always laugh at when people use the word horny, like, seriously. Because I, I maybe, not to get too explicit, but in my sexual experience, I've never said, like, I'm so goddamn horny, baby, right now. I don't know. But it's just always funny to me. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, but different strokes for different folks. Um, so then, then uh, it says... Uh, he looked at his watch. Well, we got maybe 40 minutes. His penis was already beginning to make twitching movements like a divining rod, Dana thought, with sour amusement. And, and now this, that pound cake scene is kind of funny because like it's Dana making fun of him, you know? Right. Whenever King someone goes into, uh, goes into someone's inner monologue about someone else's uh, physical features or, or sexuality, it always cracks me up because like it's like the thing with Larry and the, the oral hygienist, the God, I am going crazy. Like him just taking it that that extra spot so or that extra step so him her saying um oh like like a divining rod i don't know it's uh pretty funny to me. what about you guys what pound cake do you have served up? Uh, i have one sentence it's a it's a julie lowry sentence yeah. and this one i actually think is really funny and it is she stomped off fanny swinging in tight little circles of indignation I I think I did this very late at night while I was like half asleep. I was probably reading. I didn't put uh I didn't cite it, so I don't know where it is. I just wrote down a phrase as pink as a chorus girl's nipple. Oh, I know exactly where that's <laughs> where from. Where is that? That's in the very end where uh, Flag wakes up on the beach, and oh. that's how he describe he describes the sand. Uh, let's see. <laughs> um, uh, wait, hold on one second, because I, I actually that was another phrase I remember when I was younger. Okay, so he goes um. This is when he wakes up on the beach. He got to his feet and almost fell. He was shaky, bad off, felt hungover. He turned around. Green jungle seemed to leap out at his eyes. A dark forested tangle of vines and broad leaves and lush blooming flowers that were, in parentheses, as pink as a chorus girl's nipple. He was (laughs) bewildered again. What was a chorus girl? For that matter, what was a nipple? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I've got got some more rat man lines. Nothing big, but... um, 
Uh, it's just stuff that you can tell that they pulled it over for the movie too. So when they come to get Larry and Ralph to go put him in the in the disembowelment cages, uh, the footsteps reach his cell, and you see, "Get up, Wonder Bread!" <laughs> A gleeful voice called in, "The Rat Man has come for your pale gray ass." <laughs> <laughs> pale gray. Well, it, it is funny because this. I mean, this does have this book does have the. Um, most disturbing sex scene in it as we just heard the the nadine flag one um but as outside of that we see dana and lloyd have sex but i don't i don't know if we see any other actual sexual activity Uh, in book three do we oh book three i was gonna say franny and Stuart getting it on every chapter yeah uh no book three i don't think so yeah but but i mean you know pound cake isn't always reserved for pure sex i mean we have we have some uh what was it the boobs bowels and what balls what, 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 what were the three b's last time i think it was oh, boobs no. balls and bowel movements you know and so uh so you know we, we do save this section for some other funny writings do you want to go over the names of real quick of our three oh, yeah. our three support our three oh, wait, favorite well, vegas what residents? Do you got, Mac? yeah do you have any pound cake Mac? well i'm sorry to report that i was sent straight to bed without any dessert <laughs> uh i, I like, did not i did not have any pound cake i, I mean wonder, there really isn't a whole ton i wonder if mike is listening to this because he's our pound cake expert he's just like no you idiots you missed like he has like a whole a whole scroll Roll of a parchment. Then, He'll at work one it point, into... though, Ratman does go, Ratman, don't want to hear no more of that honky bullshit voodoo. Yeah, that's it. No yeah. <laughs> but he um, says, I think he says honk, just honky voodoo in because the, they couldn't say bullshit yeah. on TV. No, um, okay, this is one thing that drove me crazy when I was reading this, and it's very much in book three. There are three different characters throughout the stand. Here are their names. Whitney Horgan, Heck Drogan, and Barry Dorgan. <laughs> and they're all three like buddies. They're not they're just all like Vegas guys. I yeah. quit. I'm going on strike. <laughs> like honestly, if you if you had had one of them in the beginning of the book, one of them in the free zone, and one of them in Vegas, you probably wouldn't notice. But they're in, I think most of their scenes are together. It's and, so I mean, bizarre. Whitney Horgan helps crucify Heck Drogan. And, and then Barry Dorgan is 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 like the head of the police, so he's all there in the end during the finale with when Whitney Horgan stands up and tries to put a <laughs> Stop doing it. I, it's weird too because it would be different if their names were like oh Richardson and Richards or even Williams, but it's it's I don't know anyone with those last names in real life. Well, I read that when Stephen King was coming up with because there's so many characters in this that when he was coming up with the names, he had some Scrabble pieces, <laughs> and I can just see Joe crawling up and just you know moving the pieces when he's not looking, and then you know so one character turned into three, and you know so Joe, you little son of a bitch, or, it's yeah, so uh, bizarre. I, I I cannot make heads or tails of why you would name so many characters like that. No one would have been know. funny. Dorgan's like, a pretty cool name though. If to say the correct, I prefer Horgan. Say it's going, they're going to press for the uncut edition and, and they they realize their mistake but they don't have time to go through and like you know it's it's, it's before the days of control find so they can't find like everything so they're like all right steven just you know can you write something explaining this and then like lloyd, lloyd has all them in his office all right boys get to work we have a crucifixion hey say by the way have you all you, you three boys ever noticed that you have the almost the same last name and they're like yeah it's weird isn't it lloyd it just guys know. i i think we uncovered another episode of the series yes. <laughs> yeah i want yeah. The, the adventures of those three they're in the desert they're all it's so oh man it's really funny how we're, we're blood brothers but we could have been real brothers because we uh, what you don't brothers. know is that uh randall's middle name is jorgen dan's middle name is smorgan max middle name name is Schnorgan, and my middle name is Mackenzie. Uh, that's Schnorgan with the umlaut over the... Uh, <laughs> Schnorgan. Dana's last name is Jurgens. Yeah. 
Oh, man. There's a lot man. of RGs over here. Um, any more pound cake, or are we, we full up? No, it's a little yeah. light meal. I mean, we, we didn't want to get... Uh, we, we were pre-diabetic last week. We didn't want to get full diabetes, <laughs> yeah. so we had to cut down on it a little bit. But uh, what's, what's our next book? Long Walk? I don't know if that is. No, there's it? some in there. Oh, there's oh, okay. a ton in there. We, I we... there's a ton in there. It's a bunch <laughs> of... Well, just wishful thinking. <laughs> I suspect we'll find some. I know and, that I know at least one that I can think of right And now. then in the Dead Zone, which I haven't reread yet, but I, I don't think there's a ton of pound cake in the Dead Zone. I'm trying to think of the next book we get to that, here, let's see, that mm, might have... Uh, so sure. we get the Dead Zone, Firestarter, Cujo's got some pound cake. I yeah. remember... Uh, I remember a scene with someone walking through a house and doing something very pounky. You know, uh, this is probably Dropping a good time lines. to to tip our hats to someone who got quite a lot of pound cake in the previous episode because we are recording this on Mother's Day. So cheers to you, Mother Abigail. Yes. Yes. To all the mothers in the world, especially Mother Abigail. Uh, and her, a very happy Mother's Day. Uh, uh, she's a woman with a fine porridge door and lots of uh, sex juices. And- <laughs> Twigs and berries. Twigs and and berries. berries. And oh, yeah, up until she died. So Um, I think that's a good transition, I'd say, into a place we like to call King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know what there is. Uh, Aside from the obvious Mm -hmm. King's Dominion, which is that the stand exists in the Dark Tower universe. are there any other uh, nods to uh, King? I have a two, and they're very small. But um, in the Anchor Books uh, edition, uh, <laughs> page one thousand one hundred sixty-five, it's another judge sequence. What? We gotta get Anchor Books as our sponsor. We we give them free advertising every episode. Like seriously, like they gotta send us some free books or something. Anyway, oh, man. Co- continue back. Uh, no, but uh, the judge. Uh, it's the, the again the crow sequence. He says, uh, "The crow looking at in at him, seeming to grin, and it came to him with a dreamy testicle shriveling certainty that this was the dark man, his soul, his ka somehow." And as the mention of ka in this book, uh, which is also uh, you know it's a big dark tower thing, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. And, and also, it also play on words because it could also be his ka. Ah. Oh. What? Hey, and also nailed it. Also, nailed it. Also, King's Dominion with the testicles shriveling, because that's because like, I think that deserves its ends in like every King book. Yeah, yeah. And then um, on top of that, the only other thing that I noticed, at least in book three, was um, when Stu, Stu and Franny are talking about moving. They mentioned that they that one of the places they would maybe move to is Castle Rock. Oh, that's oh, right. Nice. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm trying to think if there's anything. I mean, yeah, beyond the big thing of you know Randall Flag being you know this kind of connective tissue for. Dark Tower in the Stand and, and a lot of Stephen King books. Um, I'm trying to think if, if, I mean, the only one I brought was in the comic adaptation, the little Richard Bachman Stephen King cameo. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah I don't have any other besides those. Yeah. This it's, is a bit of a reach, uh-huh. but on page 978, um, Harold, Her- uh, I think it's the anchor books. <laughs> it says, Harold would stand on the lip of the drop and chant one, two, three, just like the others. But the talisman never worked. The talisman? Uh, uh, that is a big old reason. Well, hey, that's Matt. a room 237 for you. What is a room 237? Mac, I'm Mr. Ratman Beam himself. We're Mr. Rat Beam over there. You, did you mention that the rat man? He, I will, he's on the beam of the rat. You know, beam. I will say I didn't find... I really didn't find any rat references in, in book three, which I thought was really interesting because there's so many in book one and two. 
But rat Lloyd, references? yeah, for Are the, you forgetting for the, about the rat, rat man? man. Well, that's what I'm saying. Well, also the rat man. It, it, I mean, the rat man himself is. But is Lloyd prevalent. reminisces about eating the rat. Yeah, and I was gonna say that earlier. I was saving it for the old King's Dominion. That yeah, when Randall mentioned about Lloyd, he references remembering the rat. Yeah. Um. So we're definitely on the path of the rat. I was right the whole time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I we I think we talked about this in when we did the Stephen King Sam universe with the, the big feature that we linked to uh, a couple episodes ago where we cast everything and, you know, made the equivalent of, uh, of the Marvel Sam universe, but with Stephen King books, I think one of my ideas was like, Ooh, you know what we should do is Gasher. Who's a pirate character in, um, oh, in yeah. the wastelands. Oh, yeah. I was like, cast him as the same actor as the rat man. And it's like, Oh, cause a wheel. So, uh, beam we're on the beam of the rat man. I, think. I agree wholeheartedly. Any and other, um, uh, King's Dominion, Allison, you got anything? Anyone else? Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's, uh, I think, you know, the stand is the stand. I know, man. I feel it's funny. It feels like we're. It feels weird being at the end of the road because we're already at our, our final thoughts. Although we've been in Standland for God, what over a month. It now, feels right? like yeah. a tiny age. Well, we're we're going to be in Standland again next uh, up with the old miniseries. Oh, that's true. I I am excited. I'm I'm really excited to talk about the miniseries because uh, as Mike already said, we have an interview with Mick Garris. That's great. He has a ton of cool stuff to say. Say. Wait, that reminds me. I did think of something that that was a little bit King's Dominion-y. The way that um, that King describes how Randall Flagg looks right before the explosion is very similar to how he describes the boogeyman. He describes it as a scarecrow-like, hunched-over oh, right. figure. Yeah. It, I think Larry sees Flagg almost in his true form for a second, and it's he talks with the eyes and like oh, the hunched-over wow. scarecrow thing. Right? Let me, Glenn let me find also, that real quick. Glenn also references him as the boogeyman also in book two, I believe. Yeah, that's interesting. Here, let me... Uh, give me a yeah. hot sec. Let me find... Um, because Let's see, what chapter? Oh, we got Winnie Horgan, so I'm getting close. Uh, then, uh, okay, so... And there's Wolfman. Man, they really... It's funny. When I was younger, I used to think that it was like a lot... There was a lot more book after the explosion happens, but there's really not. Okay, here we go. He had a bare impression of something monstrous standing in front of where Flag had been. Something slumped and hunched and almost without shape. Something with enormous yellow eyes slit by dark cat's pupil. Then it was gone. Uh, Larry saw Flag's clothes, the jacket, the jeans, the boots, standing upright with nothing in them. For a split second, they held the shape of a body that had been inside them. Then they collapsed. Okay, sorry. He hasn't mentioned Scarecrow, but that just reminded me a lot of the Boogeyman a little bit. You know? yeah. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but... Uh, we like stretches here at the Losers Club. Yeah. Well, but uh, so are we at all overall thoughts then? I think I it's about time to talk about our overall thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. I, uh, why don't we start with Justin, because Justin actually sent us some thoughts via text. J- yeah, Justin Gerber. Well, not that they couldn't be here today. We we only have four mics in the studio, and, you know, we think it's better to have We're four. trying to preserve yeah. the uh, the integrity and the quality of the audio not for too you, much. our listeners. Well, I think also four is about our sweet spot in terms of not getting on too many random tangents. Yeah. Though I, I was very excited about our NBA tangent and... Cheers to the Blazers fan out there listening. I There's see always you. room for NBA fans. Yeah, next time Justin's on, because it was so. Yeah, the idea, <laughs> listeners, is that we're um, as you've noticed, we'll have various combinations of four um, as we go on. Uh, it's four mics, and yeah, it prevents crosstalk and overlap and all that stuff. Okay, so here's what Justin had to say um, about the the stand. I don't know if he gave me a rating or not. Oh, he gave he gave a rating. He did give one. Yeah. Okay, he texted it to him. Oh, he did. Okay, so so we're just gonna do the thoughts first, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Fun. All right. Here's my review summary. 
In the preface, King calls the stand a long tale of dark Christianity, so I read it this time around with that in mind. It made the God's Hand finale and more religious aspects more palatable when viewed in that way. I love books one and three, but book two remains a sore spot filled with ad hoc meetings. Still love the novel, but there are greater works around the corner. Ouija Origin of Evil is a bad movie. God damn it. He's always coming at me with that. Um, that, that, uh, it's a good movie. I'll, I'll go next if it's cool just because that lines up with my thoughts on the book. Um, well, Justin also shared some thoughts with me, so I just want to share those. Wait a second. Uh, quote, MVP, unquote, James Harden has 10 points with six minutes left in an elimination game at home against a team sends their best player. Hashtag H-O-U-V-S-A-S. Oh, That's not boy. true. We just tweeted that, but I just felt like we need to get to the <laughs> I was going to say, like, does he have other uh, Ouija Origin of Evil thoughts? Uh, just that sucks and he hates you. James Harden yeah, yeah. sucks and so does Ouija Order. God damn it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I read the preface this time around and none of this had, had stood out to me as much as um, before when I read it. But yeah, he does call it a dark tale of Christianity. So even my, some of my criticisms about the, in book two especially, of uh, good and evil presented in this God and devil context, which... You know, I, I said before, I hate the line Mother Abigail has to Nick, like, oh, God believes in you, because I think it's like a mean thing to say to someone. Um, but, but like I said, book three does clear a lot of that up for me. And also, one of my favorite books is the Lord of the Rings series, and King has repeatedly said that this is his version of Lord of the Rings. Now, something that I have to remember when reading The Stand is that Lord of the Rings, good and evil, is very differentiated, and he doesn't really do anything specific to differentiate it. J.R. Tolkien, for him, it's... Sauron and the orcs and whatever else are bad. Uh, Gandalf and the, the you know the, 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 there's bad guys and good guys. So if I like that book and I can appreciate that book without a ton of nuance in terms of the opposing forces, I can do the same thing with the stand. Um, that being said, I do agree with him about book two. Book two is a slog. I still think there could be a greater balance between um, what goes on Vegas and what goes on uh, in the Boulder Free Zone to balance out some of that ambiguity. Like, I do think the book has more nuance and ambiguity than I originally thought in book two. I think it earns it, but I wish it got to it just a little bit sooner. Uh, what about and, you? Well, how many uh, uh, Bright Red Pretty Wise Clownoses would you give it? I give. I would give it, you know, I, I was going, in book two, I was sinking toward three and a half or even three, but um, because of book three and the, the complex ending about systems failing, which I really love, uh, that bumped it back up to four for me. I, oh, you know, when I was like, Ten, like 13 I probably would have said 5 but uh, yeah. I'm going to go with 4 it's a 4 noser 4 bright red plenty wise cloud noses Mac what do you got? Uh, no I agree with you Dan and Justin I think that you know again I, I, I actually enjoyed book 2 but it is just a bit of a slog um, books 1 and 3 I loved and I, um, I I'd probably give it 4 Pennywise red clown noses for you sure. You have to say bright red Pennywise. Bright clown. red Pennywise clown noses. Um, and I know Mike and Justin, I believe, also gave it four. Yeah, yeah. Mike said Mike said it was a four noser. Um, and, and I think he told uh, Justin told you a four noser. Allison. Um. So as the well, one of two people experiencing the novel for the, for the first for the first time, but the only person experiencing the story for the first time. Um, this was a bit of a roller coaster for me. You know, yeah. there were some ups and downs. Um, I did some eye rolling, some Anderson Cooper eye rolls. <laughs> I, I definitely give it two Anderson Cooper eye rolls <laughs> for Julie Lowry alone. Um, and there are, as with a, a lot of things that King writes, there are sections where I think, Jesus Christ, how did no one tell you you didn't need all this? 
Um, but I think it's just a, an incredible attempt to trace the downfall of society mm-hmm. um, through a means that feels totally feasible. Like, of course, we would bring about our own downfall, and of course, we'd be our own worst enemy in trying to return from that. Um, and the characters are so vividly painted that, like, that's what's going to sit with me. It's you know, that's Glenn cast, yeah. is going to sit with me, and Tom is going to sit with me, and Nick is going to sit with me, and Dana is going to sit with me, and that is Julie Lowry, home. too. Especially right. Julie Lowry, <laughs> always and forever. Julie will do more than just sit with you. Oh, I know. It's she's one of those girls that she just even even after all this, you think, yeah, she'd probably go for it. Um, Unless you're I, the Rat Man, I guess. I'm planning my Julie Lowry. Well, no, even the Rat Man in the right circumstances. Um, yeah, I'm probably like the. I'm rat planning man, my though. Julie Lowry tattoo as we speak. No, I am. Um, <laughs> I would also give it four bright red Pennywise clown noses, um, and I wish that it was a five noser. I think at its very best in some of the sequences like the um in book one the montage where we're going through the journalists and the protests a lot of those individual vignettes are incredible Mm -hmm. um there's some great the the walk through the bunker with the guy's face in the soup um yeah all of that lives with me in a in a way that i'm having a hard time shaking um the final meeting before the explosion and the meeting after the explosion. Um, and then that Dana sequence and both of the big Nadine sequences in book three, they're just all that Tom stuff. Um, I don't think I'll forget it, you know, and I don't, I read a lot and books tend to fly in and out. Um, if they're not really wonderful. And mm-hmm. I think this one will sit with me. So I wish it was a five noser, so but, but Julie some, Lowry. So it's a four noser. There's some, uh, there's some five nose writing in there. There is some five nose writing. <laughs> uh, like Dan, uh, this would have been a five noser when I was a kid. This is the book that really, um, made me, it was my first Stephen King book. It made me fall in love with Stephen King. It kind of made me fall in love with horror fiction in general and, uh, help foster my love of horror which is a big part of how I make my living now so it's uh it's it's you know it's a book that means a lot to me um and you know I'd say that uh though the read perhaps wasn't as satisfying this time around as it has been in the past this is probably my fourth time reading it all the way through um it still to this day has my favorite ensemble in Stephen King absolutely um the characters are uh the kind that I bring up in casual conversation um and you know and it's like uh the like you meant like you mentioned Allison like there's so many like dynamite scenes and dynamite arcs and archetypes that are explored I mean like characters like Harold and Nadine represent to me um such a breadth of uh of storytelling like uh development and arc and like it's like I think it's it's a very epic book and I love the finale I've always loved the finale with uh, the disembowelment cages and sort of the hand of God. Like, even if it is a little cheesy, maybe, the hand of God, the, the epic proportion of it, it's very rare that a book can achieve something that feels that massive. And um, and I think for me, that's... I've always kind of looked in awe at the stand. It just... And I, oh, I, sorry. Oh, yeah, I still do, though. And I think that it's... I Even though it wasn't... Like, I'd say book two was actually... It took me a very long time to read it uh, this time around. And... It was a bit of a slog, and I know we've all been saying that, but that was, you know, for some odd reason, kind of a surprise to me this time around. But it, um, but I'd say that, you know, and then also certain portions of it, you know, just as you get older and you get more experience, you realize certain things that 
you know, I really wish that, uh, I really wish I could look past the fact that the book is pretty much comprised entirely of, you know, white people and, um, and that there is the, the idea of like a diverse America is very, uh, you know, unexplored here. It's, you know, and it almost is as simple as good and evil sometimes. It, it, it transcends that obviously, but you know, there's just certain things that I find I had a little bit more trouble getting past and, but you know, overall though, it's it's still a book that means a lot to me, and I, it meant the world to me that my wife—it was literally a vow at my wedding that my <laughs> wife would finish reading the stand, and um, I'm so glad she did, and she loved it too. But you know, it's like that's how important this book is to me. So, what, what would Jen give it? How uh, knows this? Uh, Jen would probably give it four. Yeah, yeah. Four. So it's a, this is the is this consensus? the first consensus? Yeah. I was gonna say. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Were we at consensus on rage? Oh, I think we were. Although I, I think, think no, I, I think we were, were all variations. we were all like two or below because I think I think Mike gave that like a half nose or something. Yeah. I gave it like a, a nose and a half. Um, Mike was harsh uh, nose wise. Yeah, I um, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I agree with like it definitely being the strongest cast of characters. Yeah. Um, I I can't even rereading Salem's Lot, which I actually like a lot better as a book. Um, the characters in that aren't developed the way they are here. Right. So yeah, it's it's weird where I have Stanlin, but I am excited. To get to a one one book an episode for a while, yeah. which I think we have probably yeah. until it or, or skeleton crew. I forget which one came first. I think I think we're on like a, a good every book we have for a while is I think only needs one episode. Uh, I had a terrible realization just now, What's which that? is that for a week and a half I've been waiting for the opportunity to use the phrase Deus ex trashina, <laughs> <laughs> and I. It. Oh, I've been sitting on that. Deux ex trashina. Deux ex trashina. I did, but it is enjoyable. But it, it is funny because like Deus ex machina, it's machine of God, and this is literally a machine, like right. a machine, and then God coming down. And that uh, that leads me to think, yeah. like, what do you, what do you, well, how many red clown noses do you think Trash would have given this book? He's <laughs> bumpity bump. He just <laughs> yeah, not as many as he'd give. Uh, Baby, can you dig your man by Larry Underwood? Yeah, he loves oh, it. Oh man. Um, well, thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been a, a wild ride going through the stand with you all. And luckily, it's not over. So uh, uh, get on Amazon, rent that uh, stand miniseries. I don't think I... you can. Really? I, I don't think you can rent it digitally anywhere because there, there's some weird rights issue. It was on Netflix it for a while. It was on Netflix for a while, but I, yeah. I don't think you can rent it. I think you can like find you know um, Daily Motion or yeah. YouTube clips. Yeah, okay, watch it illegally. Or buy the, you can probably buy the DVD. <laughs> you can buy the DVD. That's how we, yeah. we watched it. Um, yeah, watch it catch up on it because we have so much to talk about with it and that's probably going to be a, a gargantuan episode because it also will include an interview with director mick garris which who is such a nice man he was great and it was i think that was like 45 minutes too, yeah right just the interview with him i mean we'll, we'll of course condense some of it but um he had a lot of great things to say a lot of cool stories uh, much like adam stork about about filming and uh, what went into the adaptation process and all that. Yeah, and then also you're going to want to gear up because uh, uh, two weeks after, well, two weeks from today, you're going to get the Stan miniseries episode, and then two weeks from then, so a month from today, we're going to be on the, we're going to be heading off on a very long walk, as they say. Uh, that is our our next book. So start reading that now that you finish the Stan. And uh, in the meantime, long days and pleasant nights.
Consequence Podcast Network.